Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald faced truth. Well, the Trailblazers have not been good in the preseason. I should clarify you know, we don't always look at record when it comes to NBA preseason games, NFL as well. But I think there are issues with the Blazers right now because. The problems that we're seeing on the court with the Trailblazers look suspiciously like the problems that the Trailblazers had all of last season and maybe even the season before that. I want to know whether or not you think we should be reading into this. Should we be at all concerned as people in the Pacific Northwest watching the Trailblazers struggle on the court? One and four in the preseason. Getting blasted, defense not that good, offense doesn't look good. Looks like a lot of Groundhog Day from last season, even with Damian Lillard in the lineup, healthier, happier. I want to know what you see and how much we should read into it. Because simultaneously, the Utah Jazz, the Lakers, they don't have wins. Milwaukee Bucks are 0-4. But why are we worried about the Blazers? And other markets are going, hey, it's just the preseason. 503-417-7575. Tell me what you see. Meanwhile, Draymond Green, back with his team. He has been fined, not suspended by the Warriors. And I'm kind of okay with that. I kind of I look, I look at it th- two different ways. One, if you're an NBA team or an NFL team, Major League Baseball team, if you're, let's just say if you're a professional sports team, I think the games that happen on the court, on the field, are regulated and have the oversight of the league. And if something happens on the court, on the field during one of those games, you you have to look to the league for the punishment and uh, potential fines and suspensions. But I, I, I have long believed that what happens in practice, that belongs to the team. That belongs to the coach. That belongs to the organization. That belongs to that family unit that we call an NBA basketball organization, the basketball side of the operation or the football side of the operation. And I think if we start leveling suspensions in practice situations, if we start saying, oh, that was a criminal act, Draymond Green punched Jordan Poole, I think it's a slippery slope. And I think we're asking the league to have oversight in a place that we can't reasonably expect the league to have any kind of consistent oversight. Uh, the Draymond Green and the Warriors, they've got to figure out, do they want to be an organization that uh, has uh, players, guys, the phones are ringing, why don't you pick up the phones? Uh, do, we, do they want to be an organization that has uh, uh, you know, uh, a player that's punching other players and, uh, you know, and, not, and getting away with it and causing a disruption? Or do you want to have uh, an organization that uh, is is going to police itself. Sorry, lost my totally lost my train of thought as the phone lines were blowing up after I asked for calls and they were just ringing and ringing and ringing. It's frustrating for me. Um, I digress. Uh, Stephen, just tell us what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 
It's a little bit of what you're saying. It's, it's the preseason, so it shouldn't matter. But at the same time, it's the same thing we've seen for years, right? The Blazers defensively struggle in the pick and roll under the Terry Stotts regime. Now Chauncey Billums comes in, says they're going to guard it differently. But it's the same result. It's still bad pick and roll defense. It's bad help defense. Is it going to get better? It seems like it could be the same exact thing. C.J. McCollum, Damian Lillard in the backcourt. Now it's Anthony Simons and Damian Lillard, two undersized guards who don't play defense. So, yeah, I do take a little away, a little away from the preseason. I'm trying not to overreact, but I also had lower expectations than a lot of people had here you know, about the Blazers. I thought they were the 10th best team in the Western Conference coming into the season. So this is kind of what I expected. And you know, I think the real question right now, John, for me is I'm trying to determine if Chauncey Billups can actually coach. Because last season was not he was not asked to actually coach games. They wanted to lose. They were trying to tank, get the top draft pick. So he hasn't had to prove anything. When I watch the preseason, I break it down. It's a lot of unorganized defense, unorganized offense. And that's the thing I worry about is if Chauncey Bills doesn't have a hold of this team, isn't organized, he's not holding these guys accountable, it's going to be bad. And it's going to be bad really quickly because the schedule at the start of the year is tough for Portland. That's the thing I'm looking at real, you know, at the start of the season is how do they look if they're unorganized, man? I think this could go real bad real quick. Yeah, I think also I was talking more about Draymond Green, but Draymond Green and the Warriors, the Warriors have suspended, not suspended Draymond Green. They have fined him. I think like when it comes down to a team and what happens at practice and what happens on the court, uh, let's just go to the phone lines. This is really frustrating way to start the show. Dave's in Vancouver. Go ahead, Dave. Oh, thanks for having me on, John. Um, yeah, hey, sorry. Uh, hey, Dave, I want to apologize. I know you called, and it rang and rang and rang, and our phone screener should have picked that up, so I'm sorry for that. Wow, that's that's very n- nice of you, John. I appreciate that. Yep. Anyways, um, I have Comcast. Last season, I didn't even watch one game. But uh, my problem is uh, I know everybody loves Lillard, and I haven't been that hot on him ever since True Holiday totally worked him over during the playoffs but uh i just i mean he's a great player yeah i like him on my team but the money no one understands the money aspect of this stuff and all the media and all the people they love lillard you're not going to win with the money it's like russell wilson he's not worth the money yeah he's a great player and i'd love to have him at 10 million same with lillard i'd like to have him at 50 million but he's not a 40 million dollar guy not even close to steph curry's potential yeah. Ability. Yeah. And, and, and look, and, 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 and look, all that money Yeah. Look, look. There's a lot of money in sports. Let's let's not mis- Let's make no mistake. There's you know bad contracts. I'm not. I don't necessarily blame players for what teams offer them and pay them. I don't think you can begrudge a NBA player, an NFL player, for what a team is giving them. But I do think you have to uh, look at the organizations that are handing out these contracts, drafting these players, making the personnel decisions, and you have to ask, like, do they know what they're doing? And where I was going to go in the opening part of the segment is you've got these two parallels. You've got the Blazers in this non-conference season that is uh, very frustrating to watch. It looks It's reminiscent of the last couple of years and all the problems that the Blazers have had, and you know, they, they just, it looks like Groundhog Day on the court. And we don't trust it. Right, Because we see it and we go, this looks like the Blazers of the last couple of years. This doesn't look promising. It doesn't look like they have great energy. It doesn't look like they have a plan. This roster doesn't look better than the last year and the year two years ago roster. And, and so I think a lot of people start to roll their eyes and go, this is going to be problematic. Uh, that said, you look over at like the Golden State Warriors. They had a catastrophic team chemistry, culture, uh, you know, 
uh, fracture with Draymond Green punching Jordan Poole. And that video that got out, and we definitely see that there, there are two teammates who have got serious problems, and yet we, we, we don't trust the Blazers, right, because we look at their proof of performance in recent years and we go, they still don't, they don't look like they've got it together. And even though the Warriors look chaotic and are not suspending Draymond Green, they're just giving him a fine and bringing him back together, we sort of trust the culture of the Golden State Warriors, and we go, you know what, that culture's going to override everything. I think it's going to be a really interesting study. Like, the truth might be closer to the middle. It might be that the Blazers, uh, you know, are a little better than everybody anticipates, and it might be that the Golden State Warriors have got a real problem in the locker room. But for now, I feel the public giving the Warriors the benefit of the doubt, but not giving the Blazers any benefit of the doubt. And you know what, I don't blame the public, because I just think... It's proof of performance. You can only sell two things if you are a, a, a sports franchise. You can sell proof of performance or you can sell the promise of performance. There's no in-between. There's nothing else you can sell. You know, the, the Blazers uh, have done it mar you know, brilliantly with their mottos over the years. Rise with us. Rise again. They're selling the promise of performance someday. But the Golden State Warriors had a player who is a tentpole player in that organization punch out another star player in that organization and we all look over and go they'll figure it out that's the difference between what's going on in golden state and what's going on in portland frankly right there d's in portland d go ahead hey john how are you doing today man doing well um i i just want to say that uh if you look at the roster it's just not good uh up front you're too small again i don't care if ant's going to be all-star he's not going to be able to guard six foot six Six foot five, six foot six shooting guards. They're hard to defend. On top of that, all other teams in the conference, the division, they got better too. So the best way for all this mess is you just got to tank. But here's the problem. The management sucks. The ownership sucks. They'll never do that because it's all about one year, one year. Nah, man, I, we're all about this age where it's like, are we going to play for a championship? Yeah. And a lot of other fans are tired of it and you know i'm gonna say some you're gonna see this season not a lot of people are gonna go to the games you're just gonna see it because i can just tell that that the team just it is what it is they're not good and i'm sorry to say that but like i said either tank or sell the team or do something different because it's not going anywhere guys it's not have yeah. A good day, John. yeah, I appreciate that. I think, you know, he, he's speaking right to it. I can hear the frustration uh, in Dee's voice as he's talking about essentially going through another season that doesn't feel very hopeful. And that's what it comes down to for the Blazer fans, right? Like, look, I'm in it with you, Blazer fans. I, I want this team to be good. I want this team to uh, have success. I want the franchise and fans around the franchise to be really excited about it. But... I, how do I do that when the guys on the court don't look like they're into it? And the organization, you know, is sort of spinning in a circle in the same place. Like, you know, uh, you know, we all can leave and come back and they'll be in the same spot in two months. Like, that's what it feels like uh, with, the tr with the Trailblazers. Let's go to Sean and Sandy. Sean, welcome. Hey, John. How you I doing? Liked, uh, what Coach said after, you know, the game, the press conference, he said, you know, the team's showing good effort. You know, so I think that's kind of a cover-up. You know, that's kind of saying, you know, it couldn't possibly be the coaching. You know, it's talent on the team. And uh, I think, you know, a good coach can 
possibly get a lot more out of these guys, but I think the team's going to start just going for the tank for another year or two. And uh, they're just going to ride this out until we get a new owner. I think there's really no great leadership. And until we get a new owner and some leadership here, uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of change. And they're going to have to show the Blazers fans because at this point we're saying, you got to show us. Have a great day. Yeah, and, and that's what I come back to. And I think Steven talked around this a little bit too, is that it looks like you're, you're looking to see can Chauncey Billups coach. You're looking to see, you know, the woes of the team last season on the court, will they continue this season? And Yusuf Nurkic with five fouls at halftime doesn't help. But I'm looking, you know, there are some teams generally in the league where you look and you go, okay, they're not having success in the preseason, but they'll get it together by the time the ball is tossed up and the regular season starts. And we all know who those teams are. We don't necessarily look at the Warriors or uh, even the Milwaukee Bucks or, you know, some of the other contenders in the East and the West, we don't necessarily look at them and go, hey, they've got to be really good. We need to see what this team's going to be in the preseason to know what it is in the regular season. But I think the Blazers sort of are in a different category, maybe a category with a few other teams that are kind of trying to answer some big questions. If they don't get the answers to those questions, if they don't figure that out, uh, you know, early in the season, it will be Groundhog Day. And I and I think a lot of the callers that we ha- we've had on the show so far, like two or three of the callers, have sort of expressed a similar sentiment. Like they're just fed up with being sold the promise of something. In the end, they're going to need to see it sooner or later, right? It's like you know, you you. you it's like the old uh, adage, you know, there there's the there's the stick and and there's the carrot. Like you know, if, which one is the mule going to respond to? Well, sometimes you got to give the mule. And the mule is us, the sports fan, by the way. you got to give the mule the carrot. Like, we need the carrot once in a while. Like, we need to see this team win. We need, you know, in order to trust it. And that's why I think there's a big difference or disconnect between, like, what Warriors fans are feeling today. They, they may be a little uneasy. Like, it's never good when one of your players is punching another player out. But the fact that Steve Kerr sat Draymond Green, Green down and had him sit down with Jordan Poole and those two guys talked and, you know, they have fined him, and, you know, he's come out and he said he's sorry, and apparently has apologized to Jordan Poole. Like, there's a lot of us that go, hey, that's the Warriors. There's there's a pretty strong possibility that the Warriors uh, figured that out and did it the right way. I want you to leave it here. Uh, coming up, we'll talk about MVPs in the NFL, who are the best bets. Plus, we're going to give a visit with Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times. He covers the Mariners. He'll be joining us uh, coming up later this hour. Leave it here. Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. In the 5 o'clock hour, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, will be with us. Ryan Divish. The Seattle Times he covers the Mariners. Oh, the Mariners. Uh, he'll be with us coming up at 3.30, about 10 minutes from now. Divish will be joining us uh, from Houston, side of Game 2 tomorrow in the American League Division Series. We'll uh, gauge the temperature in the locker room or the clubhouse with the Seattle Mariners as they are on the road. Let one get away in Game 1. But baseball, uh, they each count for one in baseball, and the Mariners get an opportunity to come back in Game 2. 
Uh, is there a managerial issue going on in Seattle? A lot of Mariners fans frustrated with the way the game was managed in game one. We'll talk to Ryan Divish. He's got boots on the ground. He knows what the heck he's talking about. Uh, later this week, uh, uh, Jake Dickert, the Washington State football coach, will be with us. They're playing at Oregon State on Saturday. We'll give our picks on tomorrow's show. Uh, every Thursday we go through the picks in the Pac-12. Uh, I had a bad week last week. I'm not feeling good about my performance. I need a, I need to regroup like the Mariners and come back with a really solid week this week. Meanwhile, the NFL MVP race is getting a little bit interesting. Uh, we're at the point of the season where you can start to see some separation with some teams that we know that will contend and maybe some teams that are struggling. So it's possible, like every year in the NFL, that this MVP race won't be settled, of course, until the last month of the season. But I'm looking at the bets on the board right now, and I want to kick this around. Josh Allen sitting as the favorite on the board as the NFL's MVP at 2-1. to one. Patrick Mahomes right behind him at 4-1. to one. Uh, you've got uh, Jalen Hurts at five and a half to one. Lamar Jackson at six to one. See the theme here. Justin Herbert at sixteen to one. Tom Brady at thirty to one. Joe Burrow at thirty-three to one. Aaron Rodgers at thirty-five to one. Is there someone else that you'd put your money on, or did we just mention what, who will end up as the NFL's MVP? Uh, I want to kick this around, Stephen. As I mentioned those. Who jumps out to you as a good bet or a value? Yeah, that's, that's tough as a value because I think Josh Allen is really likely to win the MVP. But it's such a low number that you would love to get more. I was going to say Tom Brady, but I wanted to make sure I go look at his stats because you know a lot of guys are healthy around him. He's just not putting up the numbers that he once no. was. Um, but I, you know, he's got his, all his guys healthy now. Mike Evans is uh, not suspended anymore. Chris Godwin is back. So you know, I would say. Maybe Tom Brady, if he you think he can get going with the stats, but I just don't know if he's going to put up the stats. Um, besides that, I would say it's Aaron Rodgers. I think Aaron Rodgers has had a struggle of a season, but he seems to be getting more comfortable with his rookie wide receivers. The Packers are in a division where they play the Lions and the Bears still, so they're going to get a lot of wins, and I think that's very important in the MVP. you got to have a really good team. They probably are going to win that division, uh, the NFC North, so I think Aaron Rodgers, he's just like Tom Brady. If he can get the stats, I think he's up there. I also think if you look at Josh Allen, like you know, I don't th- I don't see the point in betting him at two to one. I, I just don't at this point of the season. I don't think that's that's a good bet. But I look at some of the other guys that are out there, and and I'm going, okay, who's got upside here? Um, you know, and and by the way, this is a league where you got a bunch of teams that are sitting there with two and three losses. There's a lot of parity outside of what the Eagles are doing to this point of the season, and so. I kind of think that you know Jalen Hurts may be overvalued because his team is five and zero, and I think that Allen is just not a good bet at at two to one. And I also think like you have to kind of look at the way that some of these QBs play the game. Like I, I love Lamar Jackson's game, but I also think he is prone to uh, the way you know the fact that he carries the ball and he takes some punishment. I kind of wonder about the health of Lamar Jackson long term in a season. Is Justin Herbert at sixteen to one in this conversation? Because I'm looking at you know the Chargers at three and two, and you know they've won a couple games in a row. But I'm looking at the Chargers going. Look, if the Chargers somehow make the playoffs um, and and win a couple playoff games or are positioned well at the end of the season to win a couple playoff games. Justin Herbert's at sixteen to one, 
it would take monster performance from him. But if if you cross Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson off the list and you know, Herbert is in the same division as Patrick Mahomes. I kind of think like you could bet Mahomes and bet Herbert and feel like, hey, you're going to get one of those two probably in the top two or three of the voting at the end of the year. No, I think that's a good point. And, you know, you look at Herbert, he's got the stats, right? Ten touchdowns, two interceptions. He's already thrown for almost 1,500 yards uh, in the five games that they've played, so you know, almost 300 yards a game. He's going to put up the numbers, that's for sure. If we've learned anything about Justin Herbert – you know, he was breaking records in his first two years in the NFL. He's going to put up the stats. It's just a question of how good are the Chargers going to be at the end of the year because that division is still tough. I know the Broncos have struggled, but they still have a really good defense. They play the Broncos on Monday night. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think if, you, if you're taking out Josh Allen, who I think is by far and away the favorite and most likely to win, I th- you know, Herbert, Herbert's a good, good value bet. Yeah, a two to one though. I just don't, I don't yeah. like that. Oh yeah, know? no, no, no doubt. Like two right. to one is too much, but like I just think. More often than not, he is going to be the MVP. There you go. Um, uh, there it is. Tweet at me at John Canzano BFT. Tell me who you would put your money on when it comes to the NFL MVP race. Uh, also, uh, we'll talk uh, later in the program about uh, some of the other futures bets, including college football. Uh, Oregon, of course, on a bye week, but we're going to talk about the Ducks on today's show. I'll give you the path to the college football playoff for Oregon. I've been looking deeper and deeper at what needs to happen for Oregon to get there, and I don't think it's that crazy for Oregon to get there. First and foremost, they just got to take care of business. We'll talk about that later in the show as well. Uh, Coming up next, Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times. He covers the Mariners, does a hell of a job. He is the guy on that beat. He is going to join us from Houston to talk about what is happening with the Mariners, what he expects in Game 2, what was that? What was that uh, clubhouse like after the game one loss, the walk-off loss as the Astros had a big one? Ryan Divish coming up next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. My go-to for Mariners coverage is Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times. He's the guy. You should be reading Ryan Divish. You should be following Ryan Divish. And now you're going to hear from Ryan Divish, who's joining us. Uh, set the scene for us. Where are you right now, Ryan? I'm at Minime Park, uh, an empty Minime Park. We're working. Uh, media day. We had a media availability with Scott Service today. Uh, but it's pretty empty and pretty quiet, much different than it was uh about 24 hours ago, and Mariners went out, about 47,000 Astros fans were celebrating a walk-off victory. So quiet, and it's air-conditioned, which is good because it's a two-level gold bond day here in uh, in Houston, <laughs> for those that know what that means. <laughs> Ryan Divis, Seattle Times, joining us. Uh, Seth, like yesterday, as it was unfolding in the ninth inning, you know, it obviously these are the Astros, they're playing at home. Did you see it coming? Did you did you were you kind of watching it unfold going uh-oh uh-oh or was it a shock? No, I mean I could kind of see it coming um in the sense that I think the Mariners have won 6 games in the last 4 years here, 6 or 7. So, um you know, it's they've had struggles here. They they have difficulties putting this team away. The Astros are really good. They're really good at home. This place gets loud. I could see it the moment um, 
the moment Paul Seawald hit the number nine hitter, it was a 3-2 pitch, so he was either walking him or hitting him because it wasn't close. The moment that that guy got on base in that situation, I thought there's trouble ahead. And it was kind of like um, you look at, you know, the, that brought Jeremy Pena to the plate. Or they, they, no, and then Seawall came back and struck out Altuve. I thought, okay, maybe there's a chance. You know, you've got you've got two outs now. But then Jeremy, you know, Jeremy Pena is batting, and you're thinking, okay, all you have to do is get him out. But it's hard to do that. And once Jordan Alvarez came up, once Pena singled and Jordan Alvarez came up, I was like, yeah, they're they're probably going to lose this game somehow. Because I figured either Alvarez would tie it, and then they'd go to extra innings, they'd lose there or they were going to lose it right then and there. And then when Scott Service went to Robbie Ray uh, out of the bullpen, I looked at uh, Larry Stone and Adam Jude, and I just said, this can only end badly. And I think Adam was like, you know, either this is going to be the genius move or he's going to be an idiot. That's the way it will be perceived. Because if it works, it's a genius move. And if not, everybody's going to go insane. Scott, and it did not work. The, the fans are mad at Service and 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 questioning him. Is he kicking himself? Is does he lose sleep over that, or you know, how did he seem to respond after the game and again today? Uh, you know, after that was the bad part. Like after the game, I couldn't even. I was rewriting. I think I had to rewrite eight hundred words in about seven minutes. Um, you know, I was rewriting, so I never really got to get down there to the post game on the podium, especially when the losing manager they go fast. Yeah. You know, so I would have probably pressed the situation a little bit more. But you know, there's a lot of other writers in there that that aren't haven't been in that situation or have the relationship with him that I do or I you know he knows I'm going to do that uh today he knew what was coming um he was fine with it he again like and I hate the word trust the process because I swear to god we just hear that nothing but they have a way of they do things and make their bullpen decisions and it's all based on a lot of meetings scouting analytics all these different things you know proprietary information you know beyond what we find on baseball reference and he trusts it because that's what they've done the last two years, and their bullpen has been outstanding the last two years. So he believes in the metrics and all the stuff that they look at to spit out the numbers that says they're going to have success. Those numbers don't bring in the human element, and the human element is that Robbie Ray has been terrible against the Astros, specifically in this place, and Jordan Alvarez is really good against anybody. So maybe, you know, the numbers, even if the numbers say it's great, the logic there or the narrative or anything else you want to look at, it says maybe not so great. We're talking to Ryan Divish, Seattle Times. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes teams will, uh, very resilient teams, will find a way to come back. What did you hear today from the Mariners that makes you believe that they are locked in and, and can put game one behind them? Because it is only one game. Yeah, it's true, and it's crazy to think about it. But yeah, I mean, like last night, even they were they were pretty, pretty res- they were pretty resolute, and that they bounced back. And you know, they have been resilient all year. And it started last year. You you'd write this team off, and then they'd find ways to win. And you think, okay, this is the loss that's going to crater them, and then they'd win the next day somehow. So I mean, they have that to fall back on. But they've never done this in the playoffs. They've never been to the playoffs, and this is crushing. I mean, it's funny. Like you look at. The, the 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 perception you know coming into this series if they go one and one here in Houston and go back to Seattle you know having one, stolen a game at home in Houston they're thinking okay great even if they win tomorrow with Luis Castillo on the mound they can't help but feel like they they let one get away because they scored six runs off of Justin Verlander and nobody does that other than them once or this year and so it's like the whole perception around it changed and I I'm sure 
even though they say they can flush it and move forward, like the lingering feeling of watching that unfold, I mean, it's always going to be there in the back of their mind. That's one of the reasons why they haven't won here very much is because Houston does that to them all the time. And I don't know if it's a complex, but until they kind of break through, you know, I don't know that it's going to change. So I, I think... You know, these guys, Ty France, the first baseman, had a funny line a while back. He's like, nobody makes fun of us more than us. And they, they really do kind of have a, a loose mentality about how they go about it. So we'll see. We'll, we'll, it's really going to, like, all that adversity stuff that they preach and everything and how they bounce back and how they flush it, we're going to see tomorrow. Because if they go down, you know, they have their best pitcher going tomorrow, and if they lose that game and go down 2-0, you know, going back and trying to win three games against the Astros, who won 106 games this year, I just – don't see that happening. Yeah, we always talk about experience uh, being an ally in a situation like this, and and I I look at this team and I go, okay, they you know this is a franchise that had not been in the playoffs in twenty plus years. Where do they look in the locker room for that settling presence? Who are, who do they turn to? I really don't know. I mean, the one guy that's got the most postseason experience on the team is Diego Castillo, and I mean, like he's just kind of a reliever and doesn't speak English really well, you know, I, they just got to look from within. I mean, like, you know, bunker, I guess they would have to just bunker in and believe because they don't have that experience. I mean, they have minimal postseason experience. And some of the guys that do have postseason experience, it came in 2020 with no fans. So that's not really the postseason. So, I mean, like, you know, and sometimes maybe the naivete of it all, like, yeah, you know, you got here, you don't have experience. So if you don't know what it means to lose all this, then, I guess you just play and, and think otherwise. But I'll be very curious to see how they kind of do it. Like I said, it was, you know, you're, I mean, John, you've been there. Like, the way that game changed, and what's crazy is, though, they did the same thing to the Toronto Blue Jays three days before. Yeah. You know, they were they were down 8-1 and came back and won. And so I, I don't, you know, I, I think maybe the, there's a bad understanding. Hey, you know, we pulled off a game we should have lost. And now we gave away we should have won, gave away we should have won. We're even, let's go play again. But this is the Astros, and the Astros, you know, I wouldn't say they're living rent-free in the Mariners' heads, but they've occupied some space every once in a while. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Divish, I want to ask you because, you know, you've been on – how long have you been on this beat? How long have you been – how many Mariners seasons have you covered? Uh, I started helping out, or I got hired by the News Tribune in 2006, covered some games, but – 2007 i really started helping cover the mariners quite a bit it's it's been a while that you've been on this yeah. and and you know i think some people who cover the blazers could probably relate to this and other things but not being part of the postseason covering what is a grind um you know i i gotta know from your experience like what it was like to see the mariners get to the postseason see them win the wild card series the way they did because you wrote a lot of game stories on probably like a Wednesday afternoon or an evening that maybe there wasn't a ton of interest in this team, but now like everybody's crazy for the Mariners in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's it's really different, um, you know. And like, and I know you know this, but like your biggest fear in some of these games is just justify, you know, doing the moment justice yeah. and writing about, you know, writing about a moment that's important and offering up enough of, um, you know, enough of a, I don't even know how to do it. Just like trying to, you're trying to paint the picture and provide everything that people don't get to see, you know, in the background. Like I, I've always, I think I've said it before, but I had an editor who says, you, you don't write game stories for the people who didn't watch. You write it for who did. 
you're giving them the why, the how, the backstory on everything that they've seen and what it means overall to the team. You're there to provide the perspective, not just the score. And so, like, how do you encompass 21 years into one story? Like when Cal Raleigh hit that walk-off homer. And granted, like, you know, how the sausage is made is I've been thinking about that lead for a few days on some level um, just because you're trying to encapsulate 21 years of failure and frustration and, you know, and then also the idea that the Yankees could have, or the Mariners could have clinched mid-game with a loss um, by the Orioles. So, like, you have all this stuff kind of in your mind working, and then even then, like, how Raleigh hits a walk-off homer, so then you're like, oh, how do I describe this? How do I do this? How do I do that? You know, everything you write now, everything you write in these days, are, it's just, you know, there are some of the biggest stories you're going to write. Or they're certainly going to be the most read stories you've ever written. And so you just try, I, like, for me, I guess it's, Spell everybody's name right, get the score right, and don't screw it up too much. But, like, no, and you have to have fun with it. I think for me, I, I'm very visual in how I write, and I'm also very um, cognizant of the emotion of the moment. Yeah. And I think for me also is, like, you know, as much as I hate Twitter and all this stuff, like, I do have a grasp of how Mariners fans think. Now, granted, a lot of it on Twitter is the lunatic fringe. You know, small, small, like microcosm of it all. But you know, I have friends that are members. I, I was people always sit there and say, "Well, how can you not be a fan?" Well, I'm not. I mean, it just you know, if I was a fan of this team and trying to write about it, it probably killed me a long time ago. <laughs> but I do have fr- friends that work. I have friends that work in that organization. You know, that aren't in the baseball side that care deeply. I have friends. You know, I've lived in the Pacific Northwest since 2006. I've known Tacoma. I got good friends out there that live and die with this team. So I understand what they're going through and so like that's what i try and make sure i i understand the emotion of is what these people are thinking and what you know how they are perceiving this this moment and that's what i've tried to to write and i mean like you're also just trying to provide the information like what what would people want to know about this team i know that when like the blazers were really struggling i had readers who said you must love it you love the drama and i'd be like no i i would love to be covering the spurs and and, you know, have everybody accept, be excited. And you got Tim Duncan as an interview. And, you know, give us an idea, too, of kind of, you know, the low points as a Mariners beat reporter compared to now. Um, like, you, like, even though, you know, we're not fans, I feel like I always want the teams to do well because there's more interest when they're doing well. Yeah, everybody wants to be written or read. You know, like, if you're right, you want to be read. The one thing is, is, like, Either be really bad or really good and don't be in the middle. Like, don't be lukewarm because then you're irrelevant, you know. And I've spent a lot of summers where nobody's reading and I get the tweets, hey, it's football season, who cares, you know. Um, but yeah, that, I guess that's for me is like how I do it is like just kind of think of, you know, just providing that information and, and you want that, yeah, you want to be read. So if the team does well, we're going to get read. You know, I, I helped cover the Seahawks when they were good, and I knew what that was like. And I think the one thing about baseball is that because it's every day and there's a result every day, you're writing something new every day, that's important. People grasp onto that. They come to you knowing that you're going to be there every day to have stuff. And then, honestly, like, so in 2008, the very first year where I traveled and went to spring training and stuff, they lost 101 games. And it was the biggest collection of jerks and malcontents I've ever been around. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to make it through this season. What have I gotten myself into? And my sports editor, because when I was at the News Tribune, when I first got there, one of our assistant sports editors, Paul Miller, told me, he was like, you're going to be our future Mariners writer. And he told Eric Williams that he was going to be our future 
Seahawks writer, and Eric's like, I want to cover the Sonics. I said, I think I want to cover you, Dub. And they're like, no, this is what's going to happen. And they realized why it was good. I love the access. Major League Baseball has more access than you can possibly imagine. You know, you, you worked with Adam Jude. Adam Jude got the Mariners to let him stand in the clubhouse at T-Mobile Park, watch the clubbies get the champagne, everything ready for the celebration, and be in there and do a whole story, a TikTok of what these guys did and how their night went and, and all this stuff. I mean, you know, you know, Chip Kelly would never let you do that. You know, Dan Lanning's not going to let you stand in one of his meetings. Like, they let us do more stuff. They, they The players understand. They talk. I mean, it just I can't imagine going back and covering college sports unless it was basketball or the NFL. I, I'm spoiled by the access. I'm spoiled by the day-to-day, and I like writing the day-to-day work more than I do just, like, standing there and listening to somebody on a podium all the time. It's interesting because I always say that there are symptoms of winning franchises, that, that the winning franchises do a lot of things nobody ever sees, and they do them well. And it's just symptomatic that they have their act together. Did, do you see changes in that way from how the Mariners sort of conducted themselves back when they were really bad versus maybe now when they're having success? Uh, maybe a little bit. I mean, obviously the regimes change in terms of like GMs and stuff like that. Uh, but like, honestly, when you're the Mariners and you're really bad, you're looking for coverage and you're looking for content about you to try and drum up the interest when you know you're going to be bad. I do think like this group of this, this leadership with like, Jerry DePoto and Scott Service, you know, they're pretty transparent and they're usually available. Like I can, you know, call them or text them. I try not to wear them out, but, you know, they're going to get back to me more often than not, and they're always available. So I think that part has been good. But, I, you know, we'll see if they retract a little bit. You know, even like we didn't notice like it's been harder to grab Julio Rodriguez now in the postseason than it was during the regular season, and maybe that's just personal preference. But, you know, certain things like that, um, you know, the, the more you win, the more people want to get their fingers on it or get around it, and that sometimes you have to pull it back. But the Mariners – universally around baseball are considered to be one of the best like PR staffs in terms of getting players and having players kind of trained to understand how to interact with us. Like they, they do training to make sure that these guys interact. And there's also the culture of baseball. Like in the past when they've had guys like Kyle Seeger or Nelson Cruz, even Felix Hernandez, those guys were always available. They always talked. They had an understanding of what it meant to be the, the best player. And if your best player, if your best players and your highest paid players on the team are available and they talk to the media, you can't be the 26th guy and be a jerk. That's just not how it works. Ryan Divish, Seattle Times. All right, how how you feeling about the game two starting pitching matchup? Uh, you know, with Mariners and Astros. I mean, like, so Luis Castillo is their best pitcher, and they signed, they traded for him, they signed him to extension for this moment, and was the same. He was outstanding in Toronto. I don't know that he can do the same against the Astros. I mean, the Toronto has a great lineup too, but the Astros have enough left-handed hitting to cause them problems. But this is a huge start. I'm really, they need him to be really good because their bullpen's wiped a little bit. And because, like, yeah, he's got to stop the bleeding, change the momentum, change the thinking around this team because right now it's it's pretty negative. I don't think with the players, but just, you know, you can feel negativity around it. So it's really important that he pitches well. The Astros are going with Framber Valdez, who throws a ton of curveballs. The Mariners are kind of like, Pedro Serrano and Major League, they don't like the bendy pitches very much. So I don't know if they're going to sacrifice a lot of chicken. I don't know what they're going to do, but they're, 
you know, I had a scout tell me that if the Mariners pitchers faced the Mariners hitters, it would be a 0-0 game for eternity because the Mariners <laughs> throw nothing but sliders and they can't hit them. So. <laughs> I love it. My bat, very, very afraid of the breaking ball. Uh, g- give us an idea. Is it Haver, Montana? Is that where you grew up? Uh, Haver. Yeah, Haver, Haver, Montana. Give yeah, me an idea. Where? What? How many stop signs do you have? You know, do you have a movie theater there? What? Give me what oh. is? Yeah. I mean, it's six thousand, or it's about six to seven thousand people. When I was growing up, there was maybe ten. You know, it's a major stop on the uh, on the railroad line, yeah. so Burlington Northern, and then even Amtrak has to stop there. So, you know, it's it's twenty two miles from the Canadian border, and I spend my off seasons there, and it's thirty five forty below with the wind chill at times. But you know, it's kind of crazy. Like I, kid from Haver, Montana, being here and doing all this stuff, never would have imagined it. But yeah, it's it's small town montana that's for certain you know we have mcdonald's and we have all that but i can get across town in five minutes and from my parents house from my parents house i can walk out pass down the block and be in a field where there isn't a house or a person for miles you know i take my parents black lab out there and just walk and i enjoy the silence of it all you know after living in the city or commuting all the time when i get home that's one of the things i do is just kind of isolate for a while Fantastic, man. And the Haver Daily News, that's the paper there, right? Did you read that growing up? Yeah, I worked there. That was my first job out of college. Uh, I was a sports editor. I took photos. and Somebody wrote, my buddy, who's now the publisher, he was, I hired him to be the to be the part-time sports writer. He's now the publisher of that paper, which is crazy. <laughs> he it. wrote something about he wrote something about me the other day. I was like, hey, you can't be writing about me if I don't give permission. But, yeah, that's not how it works. That's he right. Was, he said something like, the Mariners don't give you permission to write about them. I said, I don't want to talk about it. So, public, you're a public I mean, figure. Ryan Divis, you're a public yeah. figure now. All right. That's terrifying. Hey, I appreciate you. I, you always make time for us. I know you're busy. Uh, keep kicking butt. And uh, for people listening, follow him on Twitter, at Ryan Divish. Read them in the Seattle Times, game two of that series ahead. Ryan, take care, man. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. There he is, the pride of Haver, Montana. Love that. Um, look, I uh, I debated when when the Mariners made the playoffs. I was like, all right, I need to write about the Mariners without writing about the Mariners. Like, I'm not there covering that team on a daily basis. Nobody wants to read me writing about the starting pitching or – you know, the batting lineup or, you know, service or, but Ryan Divish is one of the people that I thought about writing about because he's been there. He has covered this team thick and thin and mostly thin and done a hell of a job doing it. He's a great read. He goes beyond the box score. That's why I like reading him and I like bringing him on. He always gives us time. Our big splash is coming up. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I uh, wrote about one of my daughters this morning uh, in part at johnconzano.com. I also wrote about Kevin Warren, the Big Ten Conference Commissioner. He gave an interview at uh, the Big Ten Basketball Media Day that really caught my attention, and he sounds like he is backing off the idea that the Big Ten Conference is going to imminently expand or we're not done yet or all that stuff that was said in the wake of USC and UCLA as he was doing his victory tour. Kevin Warren is pumping the brakes a little bit. He said he's not pausing, 
but he kind of sounds like he is pausing. I wrote about it at johnconzano.com. You can read it if you'd like. Grab a free subscription or a paid subscription, whatever works for you. I also wrote about Arizona State. They had this Skycam that they introduced on Saturday. Now, Skycam's not unusual. We see it at NFL games, see it at a lot of big college football games. It's that camera that is on the cables that's hovering over the quarterback, behind the quarterback during play usually. Um, the, the people at Skycam were at the Arizona State-Washington game that was on the Pac-12 networks over the weekend. And I found out that the Pac-12 did not hire them. So I was like, why is that Skycam in the stadium if the Pac-12 didn't hire them? Well, it turns out that Arizona State hired them. Arizona State was doing a, an experiment. They were conducting an experiment where they wanted to let the Skycam people show them all the 3D graphics and all those cool graphics you see on Thursday Night Football with Amazon on the field, the 3D graphics on NFL games. Arizona State is experimenting with it. I was told by a source at Arizona State that it was a wild success, and I have a feeling they're going to use it to try to sell sponsorships to potential sponsors who are uh, going to be part of their advertising package for the Pac-12 Network games. Keep an eye on it. Again, Arizona State paid for it. It's really confusing to me. Like, why is Arizona State paying for that, not the Pac-12 Network? But I think Arizona State's going to try to use it to uh, maximize some sponsorship opportunities. I I was told by a source at Arizona State that it was a smashing success. Uh, also, I wrote today about uh, my daughter. My oldest daughter is turning 20 today, or I guess she did turn 20 today. Um, it's a surreal feeling to have a 20-year-old kid, but uh, and also to have young kids, where we had parent-teacher conferences earlier this morning as well. So I'm on the full spectrum of things. But i got to say this about my oldest daughter, who I do not worry about. Like She is the most mature, kindest person that I know. She's nicer than me. She's more patient than me. She's smarter than me. Uh, I'm not worried about that kid. But it's just amazing to see. Uh, I When I look at her, she's 20. But I also see her at 6, her at 8, her at 12. And if you've had a kid grow up on you, you know what I'm talking about. All right, Punch It Audio is coming up. Also, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, still ahead. Leave it right here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. We'll play Punch and Audio uh, this hour in this segment. It was an interesting, uh, there was an interesting development in the, uh, in the world of Fox Business today. A Fox Business contributor who was talking about inflation in the stock market went on Fox Business uh, earlier this morning and caused a stir. I want to play this for you guys. Sean and Steven, I want to. I want you to tell me what's wrong with this picture. I mean, admittedly, you wonder how bad inflation is. Yesterday, yes, I had a nice lunch at Taco Bell. Cost me about twenty-eight dollars at Taco Bell for lunch. People need to pay for those things, and they do that by getting jobs and getting in the economy and getting active and getting involved. Wait a minute. You spent twenty-eight dollars at yeah. Taco Bell for just yourself? 
For lunch, yeah, it's really? it's true. Okay, that's, that's a lot of chalupas. That that's is. an inflation story. That is, he's a th you're both thin, fit guy. I can't see me. That that's just like the opening appetizer, but whatever. That's on Cavuto Coast to Coast on Fox Business. Guys, could you spend twenty eight dollars at Taco Bell? I don't think I could spend twenty eight dollars for my family at Taco Bell. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I saw that, John. I tweeted out, you know, I've been driving since I was, uh, I believe, 17. I got my license. I'm 35 now, so that's 18 years of driving. I've been going to Taco Bell. Have I spent $28 there in my lifetime? Like, maybe not. Like, you get a lot of cheap food there. So uh, I don't know what this guy's talking about. All right, I'm online. And Sean, could you spend twenty eight bucks at Taco Bell? No, I couldn't spend twenty eight dollars on one single meal. You know, I spent fourteen dollars on a, a real burrito, like authentic Mexican burrito, mm -hmm. the other day. Fourteen dollars, and I was like, eh, I shouldn't have spent that much. Yeah, twenty eight dollars right. at Taco Bell is ridiculous. Let's try to spend twenty eight bucks between the three of us right now. I am looking on the menu. I can do an online order. I'm going to try to try to get. Let's try to get to twenty eight bucks. Like Stephen, you go, you go here. Tell me what we're ordering. And then I'll tell you where you ended up. Hmm. All right. Well, all you, right. you got to get to closest to 28 without going oh, over. Oh, man. Closest to 28. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go. Uh, give, me a, give me Mexican pizza. Okay. Hold on. Okay. Hold on. That's in the specialty That's what you item. Start with. Yeah. All right. He's going with the I pizza. Think, I think I know the price of that. This is like Price is Right. I think okay. I can guess to me that. Uh, <laughs> okay. Give me a, a large Baja Blast. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> What is a Baja Blast? Oh, it's a mix of Mountain Dew and Powerade. It's okay. delicious. Okay. It's a Taco Bell special. Uh, let's get to the Baja Blast. I thought we were just going to do like Burrito Supreme, this and that. Okay. And the I'll Baja order, Blast. I'll order the, uh, the rest of tacos. Let's just go, to, we'll go regular tacos. Okay. Uh, to get to $28, that was probably, give me 20, no, give me 18 tacos. You want 18 regular? Yeah. Crunchy tacos. It's got to be like a dollar a piece. Okay. That's probably close to 28, isn't it? You're over, man. No. You're man. over. The crunchy tacos are $1.69. That's oh, inflation. That is... That's inflation right there. See? That's what we're talking about. It's not that many. You, so the right coming. I guess right I can only get like 15 tacos. This is, this is baloney. Yeah. Let's, let's, do, uh, let's just say if you're ordering tacos. Uh, alone, so yeah, let's do your fifteen tacos at a dollar sixty nine. You know, you're uh, you're getting there. Let's see, yeah, you're at twenty five thirty five. Maybe you get a soda. Fifteen okay. tacos and a soda. Fifteen tacos and a soda. See, the, do you think that guy's being honest when he's saying he spent twenty eight bucks? I so my theory is is that he used like an app, like a DoorDash app, oh. so there's like fees involved, and then maybe he even included the tip, like maybe he tipped like three or four bucks. Right, so then the fee would be like two or three bucks. The tip would be four bucks. So he spent maybe like twenty. Yeah, uh, do but you still think, that's a lot? Do you think Taco Bell is a good DoorDash item? I don't. Feels like the the service, the delivery fee, and the service charge, or whatever, would would make it not a very good. You know, it doesn't pencil out. Now I'm not a big drinker or smoker, but I guess I could see like if I'm you know drinking or smoking at home and I don't want to drive. <laughs> Like Taco Bell would be the order, yeah. like DoorDash, like that's that what would be you know? Yeah, you know this is just my opinion, and I I was a DoorDash driver during COVID, but I okay. I've never been on the other side of DoorDash where I'm basically doubling my money and what I spend for a meal just to have it delivered to me. Like 
you know, I understand there's different circumstances. Maybe you don't have a car to go get it. But, uh, yeah, no, it's just it's so expensive to order from DoorDash or Grubhub or any of these Uber Eats. It's just it really doubles, especially with, like, a Taco Bell. You're right. It doesn't pencil out. doesn't pencil out. And we had Okay, I, full disclosure, one, one evening um, we got a call from a neighbor who said, did you get my Taco Bell order? And apparently the next-door neighbor had ordered Taco Bell. And via DoorDash. And I guess when it's delivered, help me out with this, Sean. You take a picture of it as you set it on the doorstep? Yeah, or yeah you it? drop it on their door, and then you take a photo of it for them. Okay, so we have kind of like brick right next to the door. And I guess the photo that the neighbor got was of, you know, her burrito supreme and her soda and her, whatever was in her order sitting there. And there was some brick in the background, so she thought it was us. And uh, I said, I went and looked outside, and I said, no, there's nothing out there. But I said, you know, send us the picture. And she sent the picture, and I go, oh, that's not our house. I go, actually, that's the, that's the neighbor across the street's house, because I recognized it. And uh, I checked with the neighbor across the street. They got the Taco Bell order, and they ate it. Is it poor form to eat food that is delivered that <laughs> inappropriately to your house? Hundred mm, percent. Yeah, <laughs> they ate it. That's good investigative reporting by you, though, John. <laughs> we tracked that burrito supreme down. That happened to us once. We ordered food, uh, like breakfast, and it went to the neighbor's house, and it said it was delivered. We didn't get it, and there was no picture involved. It was like before the pictures were there, and so we just started knocking on the neighbor's doors, and it had been like you know probably five six minutes, and then we finally found where it was at, and luckily they hadn't eaten it. Like I fully expected <laughs> them to eat it. I, it they, takes, they, they, as a driver, as a DoorDash driver, it took me so much self-control and just resistance to not eat it as the driver. And I know a lesser person totally does that. I feel like that happens all the time where the delivery driver, like, oh, you know, like this person ordered, uh, like, you know, some Cinnabon Delights. Uh, let me have just two of them. They won't notice. Well, one fry is not going to hurt. Yeah, it's just gross. Do you, know? you think that, that those drivers are, are eating fries? And eating things like that. I think it happens a lot. And I think it's more than fries. You know, oh, like, I'm thirsty. Let me have a sip of this person's drink. Whoa. Whoa. Too much. Too far. Look, you know, I don't want to be on a radio show roasting some kind of business model. But I I do. I am pretty anti having food delivered to me. I I agree with it. And I've talked to owners of businesses and restaurants who say that the fees eat into their profits as well. So I don't quite know how that works. Do they charge the restaurant as well? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But yeah. I think, you know, in my opinion, DoorDash, it was a smash hit during COVID when people, you know, didn't want to go to a restaurant, didn't want to even enter a fast food establishment. So, like, for someone that was my age at the time looking for a little extra money, it was a smash hit. But uh, now I, I'm not sure if I went DoorDashing, I don't think it would be very profitable. I, uh, I'm now grossed out and I'll never do it. And, you know, I, I had it, too. I had another uh, the other day I was on air and I got a notification because I do have, uh, I think it was Grubhub or DoorDash. I don't remember which one it was. But I got a notif- notification saying I had ordered food. And I was like, uh, I didn't order food. In fact, I wasn't on air. I was at a college football game. And I was out of state. And so I was like, I didn't order any food. But I thought, well, maybe Anna did. And then I looked at the order. And it was a, a DoorDash or a Grubhub order that was delivered in the Bay Area. Somebody had hacked into the account and made a delivery. And so I called the restaurant from the press box and I said, hey, that, that order you just got, it's fraudulent. And they said, well, we're still required to deliver it. 
and then deal deal with it with uh, Grubhub or DoorDash or wherever it was. So I did, and I got a hold of them, and I said, "Hey, whoever you're delivering to, it's not it's phony. Like you know, they're they're probably having it delivered on a doorstep, and they're sitting in a car somewhere, and they're going to go grab it or whatever." And uh, they still didn't want to do anything about it either. They just said, "Hey, we'll just refund you the money." Like they still, whoever, some bandit out there, ordered from a uh, Mexican restaurant in Union City, California, and got a free meal out of it. Wow. I'll never forget today. One of the happiest moments of my entire life is when I was door dashing and I brought barbecue to like a work meeting, like a company meeting. And you want to guess how much they tipped me? How much? $70. I got a $70 tip. And I'm, you know, I'm just a college student during COVID, you know, just looking for money. And to see a $70 tip, like I was, I couldn't even tell you how excited I was that day. Yeah, yeah, I remember the time I hauled $140 worth of food into a meeting and got t- tipped $0. Oh, <sighs> brutal. Yeah. Sean, you should give uh, Stephen half your tip. Yeah, thanks. Oh, man. Level Three that out. Years later. Level so. it out, man. Come on, justice. All right, let's play a little bit of punch and audio here. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Utah hosting USC on Saturday in Salt Lake City. Kyle Whittingham, Utes coach, talking about Lincoln Riley and the transfer portal. Here's Coach Witt. Punch it. Don't know him very well at all. Uh, crossed paths a few times in uh, recruit on the recruiting trail when he was at Oklahoma. Of course, sat in meetings with him a couple times since he's been in the league with the Pac-12 meetings, but but no uh, real uh, time spent with him or, or, or sit down and, and you know have a conversation, just mainly just casual hellos. Uh, obviously, he's doing a great job at USC. Obviously, the transfer portal is being manifest how impactful it can be there and at Oklahoma. Oklahoma had mass departures. USC had mass influx of talent. You see what's happening. And you're going to see that teams are going to be able to make major improvement or go the other way more so than ever before because of the amount of turnover on your roster. There's far more turnover on your roster now than there ever has been you know, in the modern era of college football. Kyle Whittingham talking about Lincoln Riley. I get the impression that if the rest of the Pac-12 conference coaches or most of the rest were really being honest, they would point out they don't like the portal. They don't like USC's role in the portal, but they can't really say that. Just kind of the undertone or the undercurrent that I hear in Kyle Whittingham's comments about USC. Really big matchup on Saturday. Utah at home, coming off a loss against UCLA. USC undefeated. I'm really curious to see how Cam Rising and Utah looks. I think it's the game of the week in the Pac-12. Kyle Whittingham against Lincoln Riley. Utah-USC. Big implications for the conference. Some potential conference championship uh, impact on this one because if there is a tie for the first or second place teams, that that head-to-head competition becomes very big. Reese Davis taking a look at the college football playoff. He thinks Texas is going to get snubbed, and he's predicting it. Here's Reese Davis. Punch it. I think come Selection Sunday that Texas will be one of the teams. Texas will be the team that 
is like USC was, I guess that was in 16, where they started slowly and everybody said, boy, you know, if you were evaluating on how they are right now, you don't want any part of the Trojans. USC, I think, will, I mean, uh, Texas will be this version of USC. Early season losses, get them. They'll be like sitting there in that five or six range and People will say, boy, if they just had a chance on the playoff expanse, they'll they'll be the team. I think Texas is about to go on a run. That's my bold prediction for the second half. Texas lost to Alabama 20-19. Got beat by Texas Tech in overtime. Texas has been very good. They've also had some injuries at the QB position. Keep an eye on them because the College Football Playoff Selection Committee is supposed to give the four best teams and it's supposed to take into account injuries especially at the quarterback position i don't think it's a bad call by reese davis because i think he's essentially saying that he really does believe in what sark's got going at texas keep a close eye on that bill simmons ryan rosilio talking about the trailblazers you like the over you like the under on their win total Here's Bill Simmons punching. The Portland Trailblazers. <laughs> Their over-under is an astonishing 39.5, for the division, plus 154 for the playoffs, minus 140 for the play-in. I have them as an under, and I have them as an under with a lock next to it because I don't understand this team at all. We have no idea if Dame's going to be Dame again, right? He, Dame hasn't been Dame in a year and a half, and according to the preseason reports, hasn't exactly looked incredible. Lillard, Simons, and Nurkic as three of your crunch time five. What am I getting defensively, Rosillo? Am I getting stops with that? No, I mean, that's where the Josh Hart thing, like, I can't fathom who he's going to be stuck with because Grant's going to have to take whoever the good big is. So Josh Hart's guarding, like, Jason Tatum. Yeah, I think that that's going to happen. Kevin Durant? No, but they'll say, like, oh, no, that would be Grant, but I, I think there's going to be other times where Jeremy Grant gets stuck with, with other dudes. I mostly agree with Bill Simmons and Ryan Rosilio here because I think, you know, we're watching Groundhog Day. The defensive problems that the Blazers have had historically don't appear to be stopping. And I think uh, I think that you are looking at a team that is in real chaos. Uh, you know, and I, and I mean not just the roster. I mean the front office, the ownership structure, future of this team really wobbly and... I don't think the Blazers are going to leave Portland, but I think the Blazers have a lot of soul-searching to do as an organization before we can trust what they're doing on the court. Like, I I just, you know, again, I come back to franchises that win. They have their act together. And the Blazers right now look like they're guessing and hoping and wishing, and you don't guess and hope and wish a successful season together. Brett Yormark is the Big 12 Conference Commissioner. He joined Maggie and Perloff. He talked about expansion. Here's here's Brett Yormark talking expansion. Punch it. It's interesting. When I did Media Day, which was back in July, it was kind of my introduction to the conference, and I said we're open for business, people took it literally that it meant expansion because of what was going on at the moment. And for me, open for business means it's a blank canvas. We're exploring every and, every and all opportunity to build our brand, to build our business, and to geographically build our, our footprint. Um, expansion is something we're considering. Obviously, I love the four schools coming in in July. I think they make us stronger in every respect. 
um, and and just thrilled that they're going to be part of the Big 12 family. But if there's an opportunity for us to expand beyond that, which is additive and not dilutive, gets us into that fourth time zone for scheduling flexibility with our media partners, we're going to pursue it. Uh, that Does that mean we're going to go to expansion and, we, and we've been mandated that we have to expand? Absolutely not. I love the, the, the composition of our, of our conference right now. We're going into eight states from five to eight. We're going to be in front of 75 million people. Uh, so it's a huge audience for us to engage with. But if expansion presents itself in the right ways, we'll pursue it. Anybody else find it interesting that the conference commissioners are now standing down? I mean, give me a break. We're open for business while USC and UCLA were on the move. The grenades being lobbed from the Big 12 Conference towards the Pac-12. Now he's saying, well, open for business just meant we were going to explore all options. I think he's face-saving here. And I think, you know, from what little I know of Brett Yormark, he strikes me as a guy that's all hat and no cattle. All sizzle and no steak. Like, show me something, and and don't talk to me about the eight states that you're in, and you know the the additions that the Big Twelve added on. Outside of BYU, not real impressed with what they added. I also think Kevin Warren, the Big Ten Conference Commissioner, did some backpedaling yesterday as part of his basketball media day. He said he's more focused on. You know, the new networks that they've partnered with and getting UCLA and USC, you know, on track and rolling in 2024. And he, he, he made it sound a lot like, you know, the Big Ten was going to stand down and not chase and pursue Pac-12 schools. Very different tone from your mark. Very different tone from Kevin Warren, who was out on HBO Real Sports talking about how, you know, we're not done. All of a sudden... Both of these guys not talking as much or as enthusiastically about maybe poaching some teams from the Pac-12. Just saying, if you're a law, if you're a loyal listener of this show, you know the messaging hasn't changed here. I still am hearing from the Pac-12 members that they are galvanized, that they are together, that they are looking to expand, probably going to add one, maybe more than one. But the message hasn't changed here. The message has changed in the Big 12. The message has changed in the Big 10. And I find that interesting. Anna will pop in the studio, plus much more. We'll talk a little bit about the upcoming college football weekend and Oregon's path to the playoff. Not as complicated as some of the national pundits are saying. Can the Ducks take care of business? We'll deal with that later in the program. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. I find it interesting that uh, there are some people out there that just, for whatever reason, I think they root for the demise of the Pac-12 conference. I don't understand that. Like Like, I understand putting your time, effort, and energy into rooting for something. I get that. I get why Mariners fans root for the Mariners. I get why Blazer fans root for the Blazers or Beaver or Duck fans root for their teams. I get it. There's an investment you make. There's a commitment you make as a fan. There's a, obviously some disposable income investment that, that happens. But, but uh, you know, I don't understand people who root against teams just for the sake of rooting against it. And, I, and I'm not talking about, hey, 
I hate the Dodgers or I hate the Yankees. Let's root against them in this game. I'm talking about people who sit around rooting for the demise of the Pac-12 or the demise of the Big 12 or the Big 10 or whatnot. Like, really? That's that's what, uh, that's what you're doing with your time? Um, it's really interesting that Brett Yormark is coming out and saying that his open for business comments back in July didn't really mean expansion, didn't really mean realignment. You know, here's what he said in July, and then I'm going to play what he said today. Brett Yormark, Big 12 Conference Commissioner. This is him in July. What excites me most about joining the Big 12 is the transformative moment in front of all of us today. We have an opportunity to grow and build the Big 12 brand and business, be aspirational, define our point of difference, all while never losing our commitment to always compete and develop our student athletes at the highest levels. Moments like these do not happen often, and we must seize them and make the most of them. It will require incredible work and collaboration. One thing is for sure, there is no doubt the Big 12 is open for business. We will leave no stone unturned to drive value for the conference. Just as I pledge to the board, we will be bold and humble, aggressive and thoughtful, and innovative and creative, all in an effort to position the conference in a way that not only grows the Big 12 brand and business, but makes us a bit more contemporary. A bit more contemporary. Brett Yormark, uh, previously with Jay-Z's Rock Nation, uh, in working in Brooklyn and uh, uh, an executive in the NBA and uh, other places. But um, here he is talking in July about the conference's position on expansion and realignment. I've been actively engaged in realignment and appreciate the incredible input I've received from everyone throughout the conference. Exploration and optionality is at the forefront of what we are focused on. Anything considered must be additive and not dilutive. Sometimes the best deals are the ones that don't get done. The best deals are the ones that don't get done. It's like a Garth Brooks song. Uh, Brett Yormark speaking today on the Maggie and Perloff show, um, playing a little game of semantics. Here's the Big 12 commissioner. It's interesting. When I did Media Day, which was back in July, it was kind of my introduction to the conference, and I said we're open for business, people took it literally that it meant expansion because of what was going on at the moment. And for me, open for business means it's a blank canvas. We're exploring every and, every and all opportunity to build our brand, to build our business, and to geographically build our, our footprint. There he is speaking today. Uh, I think he's playing semantics. I think he knows there aren't good expansion opportunities. I think he knows that the four corner schools in the Pac-12 conference uh, aren't interested in making a lateral move to the Big 12. Um, look, I think we can all see this fairly if we step out of our shoes. Like, you know, you may love the Pac-12. I may uh, be a purist and a traditionalist who looks at the Pac-12 and the Rose Bowl and thinks, you know, uh, you romanticize it and – but I think in the end, as we sort of examine expansion, UCLA and USC made sense for anyone. They had the L.A. TV market cornered. They had 5.7 million television households, one of the two largest markets in the country, New York and L.A., 
they had um, the advantage of having all those TV households in one place and the ability to, um, you know, bring those to any conference. Like the Big 12 would have loved to have the L.A. schools. The Pac-12 would have loved to keep them. And the Big 10 would have wanted them. And I, I got to be honest, I, gotta, I think the ACC probably would have loved to have UCLA and USC as well because, hey, it's L.A. It's no better way to get L.A. But I think now Brett Yormark and – Kevin Warren, the two commissioners in the Big 12 and the Big 10, they're looking over at the Pac-12. Oregon and Washington don't make sense for the Big 10, not as a full member, not at 72 or $73 million a year in media rights money. They're not worth it. It doesn't pencil out. And the Ducks and the Huskies aren't going to take less money than UCLA or USC. It makes no sense for them to come in as a subsidized or less, less than full share member. So that doesn't work. And then if you're Minnesota and you're Purdue and you're Iowa and you're Indiana and you don't want the Ducks and the Huskies in the conference, that doesn't help your cause. You're splitting money with them, and you, that's two more schools you got to get by to matter. It doesn't make any sense anymore for the Big Ten. And so Kevin Warren, who came out and said, you know, we're not finished yet, when he did all of, all of his interviews and his victory lap on, on uh, Big Ten Media Day when he was out, you know, kind of, puffing his chest out, talking about everything that he got done. Like, it, he's now backpedaling. Your mark's now saying, well, it was semantics. People thought I meant that we were, gonna, um, that we were going to uh, take, uh, you know, Pac-12 schools. or take. We weren't talking expansion. We were just talking about being open for business. Um, I think in the end we kind of look at this and we go, gosh, uh, your mark and Warren are now backpedaling. Here's Kevin Warren on Media Day after they had added UCLA and USC. And regarding expansion, I get asked every single day, what's next? It may include future expansion, but it will be done for the right reasons, at the right time, with our student-athletes, academic and athletic empowerment at the center of any and all decisions that we will make regarding any further expansions. We will not expand just to expand. It will be strategic. It will add additional value to our conference, and it will provide a platform to even have our student-athletes be put on a larger platform so they can build their careers, but also that they have an opportunity to grow and learn from an education and from an athletic standpoint. I think it's really interesting that he was talking about the athletes' well-being and the athletes' growth, and because that is one of the counter-arguments that has been made, I think, for people who are unhappy about USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten. Um, at this point, guys, uh, I want to throw a question out to both of you guys. Um, you know, I think the Pac-12 is still probably holding out hope that the UC regents are going to penalize UCLA so severely in a financial way that it's going to make UCLA go, look, it doesn't make sense for us to leave, and they reverse and want to come back to the Pac-12 conference. But at this point, I'm kind of wondering, is there too much water under the bridge? Do, you know, Does this conference take UCLA back in a heartbeat? Do the fans in this conference want UCLA back, given that UCLA doesn't want to be in the conference? Where do you guys stand on that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think that... You know, and I'm not a fan of any one team in the Pac-12, so for me, I definitely would want them back. 
Uh, I think it just elevates the conference that much more. And I, I think you are correct with the Pac-12 holding out hope for that UCLA has to come back. It's been talked about since they announced the move to the Big Ten. Like, well, this may not happen because the you know the UC Regents may just say they can't go and call, or penalize them. So, yeah, I, th- I, I think you're right on that. Like, they're kind of holding out hope because that's the best move is to get UCLA back in the conference that will make the conference that much stronger. I think that... Like George Klyovkov has said before on on your podcast and in other uh, appearances, he said you know they would welcome back UCLA with open arms, and you know if UCLA wanted to come back to the Pac-12, it's a no-brainer. You know you don't you don't include feelings or you know hurt feelings into it. Because if you could add UCLA and then you have 11 teams, maybe San Diego State to fill it out, then you're in great shape. Um, however, I you know I don't think that it's smart for the Pac-12 moving forward to just you know be holding out hope for UCLA because I think you know what do you say eight percent, five percent like a couple weeks ago. I think it's just such a slim margin, slim chances that they do come back. So I think the Pac-12's got to move forward in a business sense as if they're not coming back. I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. I want you to weigh in on what you heard from the conference commissioners. What do you feel as a as a uh, observer or a Pac-12 fan? Uh, would you want the Bruins back? I think the Pac-12 would take them back in a heartbeat. I think the Pac-12's pipe dream is that the Regents penalize UCLA so severely that UCLA goes, this doesn't make financial sense for us anymore. And they backtrack and you replace the loss of USC with San Diego State. Now you're at 12 again, and you live to play another day. I think that's the hope. I think it's a pipe dream, but that's the hope, and I keep hearing that from people inside the Pac-12. But what do fans want? I want to know what you want to see happen. You got the bald-faced truth. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Talked to George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, a couple weeks ago. You just heard words from Kevin Warren of the Big Ten and Brett Yormark of the Big 12. We've had Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, on this show. And I'm supposed to talk to Sankey on Friday. So uh, we may have some sound from Greg Sankey on Friday's show. I'm supposed to visit with him in a phone interview on Friday morning. So, uh, I'm, you know, one of the things I want to ask Sankey is what, what, what does he want college athletics to look like? What is it supposed to look like? In this era, is it supposed to look like the NFL, professional football? What's it supposed to look like? That's one of the things I want to ask Sankey, uh, among other things. I want your phone calls on the Pac-12, on expansion, on the landscape and the ecosystem of college athletics, on what you heard from Brett Yormark, the Big 12 commissioner, and Kevin Warren of the Big 10. They both appear to be backpedaling now uh, and, and seem as though they are backing away from the idea of poaching Pac-12 schools. If you listen to the show, I've been telling you that for weeks and weeks and weeks. I think it's UCLA and USC. I don't think anybody else is leaving. Dre is in Portland. Dre, welcome back. How you doing, man? I'm doing well, Dre. I'm, I'm struggling with how, how does this help or benefit the student athlete? <laughs> it, it, it keeps getting, right? It, it gets brought up. They'll say the word student athlete and a bigger stage and academic. How is my team moving to another conference going to help me academically? Aren't we going to have the same teachers? 
and professors are <laughs> is, is an Ohio State professor going to move to California? I mean, I just don't. I think they need to just be honest. Just be honest. It's a money thing. I, I just don't understand the student athlete piece in that. Could, could you clear that up for me, Jay? Yeah, here, here's what it's rooted in. I mean, and you know, talking specifically about Kevin Warren, the clip that I played a little bit earlier, but, you know, they are facing uh, a couple of potential litigious situations. They, that college football knows that it has a problem with athlete safety, just like the NFL has with the head injuries. So uh, they, they have talked about student-athlete safety over and over and over and over and over again ad nauseum because they know in the case if there's some uh, litigation or they're sued, they want to be able to come back and go, no, 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 we prioritized it. Look at all we did. Look at all that we talked about. This is, you know, this is, uh, this is what we're about. Like, we're about player safety. Um, likewise, in college athletics, you got commissioners like Kevin Warren saying stuff it will add additional value to our conference, and it will provide a platform to even have our student-athletes be put on a larger platform so they can build their careers, but also that they have an opportunity to grow and learn from an education and from an athletic standpoint. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's throwing in the education. What, really what he's talking about is, hey, we're getting more TV money. And if we're being honest, um, you know, you can play in the playoff. But I agree with the caller. Dre's got it right because it. how does a UCLA or USC athlete benefit academically from the idea that, you know, in football it's easy because, you know, in football you'd be playing a bunch of conference games, like six conference games where you have to fly multiple time zones to play games, and maybe that works for a football player. But try it for a basketball player. Try it for a softball player. Try it in volleyball try it in some of the other sports where they're going to have really i think restricting uh and long road trips they're going to have um a lot of studying that is done on planes and in airports and in hotel rooms on the road i mean there's not an academic advantage for a ucla or usc athlete that was able to pop over and play a game against arizona state or arizona or even play against the bay area schools and be home that night versus having to fly across multiple time zones and, oh, by the way, we can't really turn around and come back, so we might as well stay on the road and play Illinois and Purdue during the same two-week stretch so that we, um, we might as well just stay out there. That's not going to benefit the athletes. And Dre's right. If the conference commissioners were being authentic about what it is that drives them, they would stand in front of the microphone and they would go, look, it's my job to position my conference in a way that makes it the most damn money that it can make, and it doesn't really matter what these athletes, uh, what we ask of these athletes. They are getting an education. They're getting an opportunity to go NIL. They're getting a shot at the playoff in football and in basketball, the NCAA tournament, and yeah, it's going to really suck for them, but that's the trade-off. Like, that's what they really should be talking about because there is no benefit academically. And I would even argue, like, do you really think, like, Caleb Williams in the Pac-12 versus Caleb Williams potentially in the Big Ten, w would there be a difference in the NIL money available to him at USC? I don't think so. Yeah, probably not. That's a good point. Like, 
and we we get mad at these athletes sometimes when they say, you know, I took I went to this team for the money, right? Like there was a big deal when Gary Payton Gary Payton II said that when he came to Portland, but it's like he's at least telling the truth, and it's about the money. Like it wouldn't be bad for everyone to come out and say, yeah, we're joining this conference because of the money. Like we all know it is. It's okay to say the truth. It is. Like, look, I love doing this radio show with you guys, but if they weren't paying me, I'm not doing it for the love of the game. Like that's honest. <laughs> I, thought you, I thought you were just doing it to hang out with me. I'm not. I, I look. I love to hang out with you, but the fa- I'm not hanging out with you for 15 hours a week. You know, I don't have that kind of time. That's the but thing. It, I, like you and me talk more than like me and my wife. So it's I like know, yeah, if I wasn't I getting know. paid, I wouldn't be here. Anna said the same thing. She goes, you know, you and Steven and Sean are in there having a conversation. But it's like, hey, the the end at the end of the day, I like. What do you think they'd get vilified by the public if? If George Klyovkov came out and said, look, the student-athlete mission, super important if you're here for the academics, but if you're here for the football, part of our job in the Pac-12 is to get you to the playoff, and we're going to do everything we can to get these football teams in position. Hell, we're going to play on a Thursday night. We'll play at 8 p.m. We'll play at 9 p.m. We'll play wherever we need to to get the most money. That's the truth. Yeah, I do think that a lot of people would vilify it, and I don't understand why. Like, It doesn't make sense to me. Sports, as you said, it's entertainment. It's about money-making opportunities, and that's exactly what they're doing. You, know, you even look at a program like Kentucky basketball. John Calipari is very open in saying, look, I like the one-and-done guys because I want to get them to the league and let them earn money there. So, like, it, there are a couple people that do it, and they get vilified for it. So it, it's, and it, it just bothers me because it's like it shouldn't be a bad thing to say I'm doing this for the money because we're all doing that in all forms of life. Like That's why we're working. That's why we're working on things and trying to get better at things to get as much money as we possibly can. That's all these athletes are doing is they're working on their craft to get money. And I think in the end of it, I appreciate the authenticity. I appreciate the honesty, but I think there is a segment of the public that the uh, commissioners are pandering to when they say that stuff. I want you to leave it here. Get the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Former Colorado, Washington, a UCLA coach, Rick Neuheisel, on his radio program uh, was was out uh, parroting, I think, some of the reports that we've seen out of Big 12 country this week as he said that he believes that Oregon and Washington are all but gone to the Big Ten. Meanwhile, Kevin Warren, the Big Ten commissioner, is saying that uh, he is focused on USC and UCLA and their television partners, and he seemed to be pumping the brakes on expansion. Um, I don't think New Heisel is being disingenuous. I just don't think he's talking to the right people. I, it sounds to me that he's talking to the same people that Dennis Dodd at CBS and Brett McMurphy at the Action Network are talking to. And I think there are some people who are motivated out there to get some uh, information in the uh, out into the public domain that may not be accurate. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. Dave's in Kaiser. Dave, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, John. Uh, hey, I would. I wish uh, uh, they'd be honest about this thing. Like you said, it's about the money, but they need to qualify that too. It's about the football money and some basketball money. Honestly, I honestly think basketball will be a break-even 
But I'm an avid golfer. I worry about the golf teams and the baseball teams and softball, gymnastics. Uh, women's sports will suffer uh, uh, for USC and UCLA. Uh, that's all I've got, John. Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, look, I think, look, I think there's a lot of people who are upset, confused, re-examining their relationship with college athletics. I heard people around last, you know, late June, early July, that were saying they were done with college sports. I'm not at that point. I'm just concerned. I'm concerned that, look, I don't need college athletics to become NFL light. I don't need it to be semi-pro. I don't need it to be professional. I'm cool with the players having the ability to get in and out of the portal with limits. I don't think they should have, you know, free reign into the portal. I think there should be a limited window. I think there should be a limit on how many times you can go into the portal. Um, we don't we don't need, you know, save for another pandemic, we don't need a bunch of players jumping around and, you know, ending up in college six and seven years. We don't need that. Doesn't help the game. It's not great for the health of the game. But um, I think we're in a weird time because everybody got an extra year of eligibility. It created a lot of roster issues. I do think you saw more activity in the portal because, frankly, there were some players that were at Pac-12 schools that they just didn't have scholarships for anymore, and they had to get in the portal and go somewhere else. They don't have room on the roster for some of the players because you had players who were fifth-year and sixth-year and seventh-year seniors who were coming back for another season. So I think it's really, really uh, difficult to to uh, you know, navigate that if you're a program. But moving forward, what do I want college athletics to be? I, I need it to be something different than the NFL. I need, their, I need the nostalgia and the tradition, the Rose Bowl, the alumni connection and the fan connection with the college game to feel different than the NFL. I, I don't need free agency in college football. The portal, yes, but free agency, no, which means you got to take a look at how name, image, likeness, money, and the portal are working together. Because I, I keep asking people, what's the bigger problem, NIL or the portal? And they tell me both. And these are college coaches and college administrators. They're saying both of them are the problem. And, and I'm going, well, why is it both? It's because there is a relationship that, that I think few people thought would, would, be a, would be an issue that has become an issue when it comes to essentially the ability for anybody to get into the portal and change schools combined with essentially the uh, the ability for any bo booster group or anybody who owns a business to offer a endorsement or enticement or inducement to an athlete who is in the portal. So now you have free agency in college athletics, which we all have seen. We all know it's happening, and it's a problem. So I don't need free agency to be there. I need the nostalgia and the connection to be there. And i got to be honest, I want a little innocence in the college game. I like interviewing college athletes better than I like interviewing pro athletes. Because when I interview a college athlete, I'm getting an interview that's different. I'm not getting them with a PR person, uh, most cases. I'm not getting them with you know a stylist and a team around them, most cases. Uh, Caleb Williams is different, USC. But uh, I, you're supposed to be getting you know, somebody who is attending school, in a class, on a campus, living a college lifestyle, you get just a different interview. And and sometimes it's a harder interview. I'm not saying it's easier. I'm just saying it's better. It's more authentic. I've interviewed, I've covered the NFL. I've covered Major League Baseball. I, I prefer to cover, I've covered the NBA. I've, you know, been at five Olympics. I prefer 
to interview college athletes, real college athletes, because I get better stuff from those college athletes. I get different answers. I like interviewing Bo Nix and talking to him about being married and what food he misses is from from his time at Auburn and and living in Alabama and all that stuff. And I like interviewing Jaden Grant and I like interviewing Jack Coletto and you know I like talking to DJ Johnson and I like I like finding out what these guys are about before like you know like on Pac-12 Media Day we interviewed Cam Ward we had like 16 or 20 athletes right in a row. It's fantastic because now when I see Tanner McKee of Stanford playing. I think about, oh, he had an internship in a summer at, a, at an investment banking company. And when I interviewed uh, the center from UCLA, I think about that kid, like he, he was going to go to Colgate when Chip Kelly told him, I need you at UCLA. And he said it was the only major college football offer he got. And he said, Chip Kelly believed in me. It was such a big deal. Like you don't get that from a pro athlete. So I need that innocence back in the college game. Leave it here. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. I just tweeted out a poll at John Canzano BFT on Twitter. Who wins on Saturday? USC or Utah? Who wins? Let's see how that poll goes. See, if I tweet out, like, who wins... Oregon State or Washington State. I probably have more people who root for Oregon State who follow me on Twitter than I do Washington State. And so it's not it's not scientific. It's totally skewed. It's game. Happens all the time. I could I could tell you that if I tweet out who wins, Oregon State or Washington State, probably about 55 to 60% of the people voting will pick Oregon State. But USC, Utah? I don't know what's going to happen with that. First 25 votes are in. 52% of those who have voted have picked Utah. What's your prediction on the poll? By the end of the show, Stephen, Sean, what percentage for USC? What percentage for Utah? Uh, I'm going to go with USC gets 55%. Utah 45 no, I, I feel like people don't like USC. You know, people like ah. Utah. People don't like USC. I think it's going to be like 57-43 Utah. 77 votes now in. Uh, it uh, is 62% Utah. We'll check in on that, and I'll let you know how that poll's going. If you want to weigh in, you can uh, on on Twitter, at John Canzano BFT. Cast your vote now. The 5 at 5, we do it every day in the 5 o'clock hour. Let's do it. The five at five. Well, Devontae Adams has been charged with a misdemeanor assault for his Monday night football shove. He shoved a credentialed media member after Monday's loss in Kansas City to the Chiefs. He was cited for an intentional overt act that inflicted bodily injury. The man that was shoved by Adams was identified by police as Ryan Zebley. Apparently, he suffered whiplash, a headache, and possible minor concussion from the incident. Zebley was working for ESPN's Monday Night Football as a freelance photography. Devontae Adams uh, apologized. Charges were filed Wednesday morning. That's this morning in the municipal port in Kansas City. Adams is due in court on November the 10th. Devontae Adams facing 
a misdemeanor. If he's convicted, he could face a jail term of up to six months or a fine of $1,000. I think they should just let the uh, microphone media member guy shove Adams from behind. Call it even. He apologized after the game. He said it was just frustration, and he blamed Zebley for running in front of him. Veteran player also facing discipline from the NFL, according to you, Adam Schefter of ESPN. Keep an eye on that story. Second uh, story in our 5 at 5, Brooklyn Nets swingman Ben Simmons. He's been criticized wherever he has been, multiple zip codes. But after dealing with verbal barbs from fans, the 26-year-old told reporters that it just comes with being one of the best players in the game. Apparently, he shot an air ball during an event for fans in a Brooklyn park on Sunday. It went viral. Steven, did you see the air ball? I did, yeah. It was uh, kind of like a little turnaround, probably 10-footer. Went, went about six inches to the left. No how, how bad was it for an NBA player to shoot an air ball there in that situation? I mean, it's outdoors. Outdoor shooting is different, but yeah, it's pretty bad. Ben Simmons says it doesn't bleeping stop. Sometimes I'm sick of it. But then I say, okay, I'm Ben Simmons. It comes with being Ben Simmons. End quote. I think there's a little more to it than that. So but he looks at his bank account and says, that's fine. <laughs> I'm, not that, I'm not that worried about it. Number three in our five at five. Remember the two anglers that were accused of stuffing fish with lead weights in an attempt to win thousands of dollars in an Ohio fishing tournament? Well, they were indicted today on charges of attempted grand theft. Jacob Runyon and Chase Kaminsky were indicted in Cleveland. Felony charges. They're due to be arraigned uh, late October. The allegations surfaced in the Lake Erie Walleye Trail Tournament. The tournament director became suspicious because the fish were significantly heavier than walleye of that length. And the crowd watched Fisher, the uh, tournament director, cut open the walleye. And they watched the weights and other stuff that was stuffed inside the fish fall out. Anglers cheating, getting their day in justice. Devontae Adams pushing a media member, getting his day in justice. His day, date with justice. Never stops. Number four in our five at five. We talked about Aaron Rodgers and his MVP odds earlier in the show. If you want to get Rodgers, he's 35-1 to 1 right now to win the NFL MVP. But Aaron Rodgers uh, says something else is on his mind. His thumb. By the way, uh, he took a hit on the final play of Sunday's loss to the Giants in London on his hand. X-rays uh, of the hand were negative which means he's okay to play. But he didn't practice, and he's been doing some rehab on the thumb. The other thing he gets is he gets the Jets this week. He's 3-0 in his career against the Jets. But Rodgers' quarterback rating is sitting at 44.6. It's the lowest through five games of a season in his career. Says he thinks he's playing as well as he can at times, and he expects... A hot streak. Hopefully it starts this week. Packers are looking to avoid their first 3-3 three and three start since 2012. Finally, the fifth thing in our 5 at 5. 
It is a non-transaction move. Sean McVay of the Rams says that despite reports and despite Odell Beckham Jr. tweeting that the con- the Rams offered him a contract, McVay says that's not our contract offer. And he acted like he didn't know what Odell Beckham Jr. was talking about. Said he loves Odell. Says he has constant dialogue with Odell. And he says he knows that I don't think that's going to be the last offer that comes from us. I don't even, I'm not even familiar with what it is. We've got some time. Odell Beckham Jr. still out on the open market. The Rams have a nameplate in the locker room at their practice facility with his name on it. They obviously want him in there. But Odell Beckham Jr. for now, awaiting a contract offer that he finds palatable. That's the five at five. Let's start with Odell Beckham Jr. How weird is that, guys? That, you know, obviously he's got injury, whatnot, and coming. There's time to get this done. But uh, how weird is it that a guy who was signed with the Rams in November, you know, tore his ACL in the Super Bowl, has a nameplate in the locker room, but doesn't have a contract. How weird is this story? It's really weird. It's really weird. It's kind of like a, uh, it reminds me of like a high school recruit that's visiting all these colleges. Cause one week he's in LA and it, it's like, he's on the team and he's under contract, but then the next week he's in Tampa and he's watching the game on the sidelines. The next week he's in Buffalo and he's just waiting to get healthy, which you'd imagine is going to be around November or December from his torn ACL. And I do think that he's still going to be a good player. You know, you have to remember that he, he contributed to that playoff run. With the Rams, he scored the first touchdown of that Super Bowl, um, and I think he's really going to contribute. And I think the Rams really need him. You know, uh, Allen Robinson and the rest of that crew, besides Cooper Cup, is not cutting it for that football team right now. So I think it's just really strange. I think he needs to, uh, you know, he's clearly just waiting to see what the records are like so he can ring chase. Yeah, and, you know, he's in a good spot just knowing that he can go to any team. There's going to be a lot of suitors for him because he's by far the best help that you can get on the open market. Like you can you can make a trade for some of the guys in the Panthers. It's been reported that uh DJ Moore, Christian McCaffrey are being made available, but you have to give up a lot more probably to get those guys rather than just signed Odell Beckham Jr. So I it, you know OBJ's in a good spot, but it's weird that the Rams still have his nameplate there and he hasn't committed anything to them. So why are the Rams doing that? It's like Sean said, it's kind of a recruiting pitch. It's a little weird. Yeah, they are recruiting him fully. And I think he I think he's more valuable to the Rams than just about anybody else just because of what he does opposite Cooper Cup and the familiarity that they have with him and the fact that, you know, it, it's like getting a, you know, it's getting the free aid. It's just like re-signing somebody that, you know, is with you except for the injury. Um, Devontae Adams charged with a misdemeanor assault. NFL looking at a suspension or a penalty as well. How do you guys feel about this? How do you feel about that being a misdemeanor assault? How do you feel about the NFL potentially coming in over the top of that? I don't nah. it's tough because he definitely should not have pushed the you know the media member right and you can't have that slippery slope where the NFL doesn't make a, a statement on it and then players feel like they can just push people out of the way right so on one hand I kind of feel like the NFL should jump in and suspend him for a game but I also don't think he should be charged with a misdemeanor because it I mean it wasn't necessarily that bad so it, it's it's just one of those weird spots I do think the NFL should probably suspend him just to kind of lay the hammer and say, you know what, players, you can't be doing this to media members, but also now have the NFL put into place maybe something where they're roping off that area so this doesn't happen again. Okay, help me out legally here because I'm not that smart in this topic, but 
we have two sports stories going on right now. We have Draymond Green, who absolutely punched his teammate in the face. And we have Devontae Adams, who shoved a credentialed worker after a game. Why is Draymond Green, that's team sanctioned, and Draymond Green's not going to be suspended. He's just going to be fined. And Devontae Adams is facing legal trouble. It's just because this credentialed worker is, is pressing charges. Jordan Poole isn't. Yeah, I think... That, that could be part of it, but I also think that when it, there's a civilian involved and it's not a member of the team or the organization, you know, I, I actually don't think the Warriors would want any trouble there. And I, I doubt Jordan Poole is interested in seeing Draymond Green, um, you know, get punished legally. So I think there's probably some of that in play. Like, I think you could go, I mean, you could go around on Sunday and you could start arresting everybody on the field for misdemeanor assault. You know, if you if you wanted to play it that way, I have a real problem with I don't think that we should be charging athletes for stuff they do in practice or on the field. I I do think Devontae Adams shoving this guy is really problematic. I, I don't I I don't want to see like a misdemeanor charge there, but I want to see the NFL fine Devontae Adams or suspend him. But I'm also reading that story and I can't help it, but what I see is that that ESPN crew member went to the hospital and said whiplash mild concussion i mean come on yeah, what's a minor concussion isn't it you yeah. have a concussion or you don't minor concussion and whiplash i mean just setting the stage for a civil suit i mean Devonte adams this is going to be bad for him anyway you cut it but i actually think he could have helped himself in the post game instead of apologizing to reporters instead of tweeting about it he should have sought the guy out should have made sure he was okay I think everybody would feel better about it if you saw that reaction from him. Uh, let's turn to Ben Simmons. He's saying, um, "Look, uh, he's out at the, you know, out at the out the outdoor court in Brooklyn and shoots an air ball, and he's getting criticism, getting criticism in Philadelphia, criticism in Brooklyn. Everywhere he goes, he gets criticized." He says, "It just comes with being Ben Simmons." Is there something about being Ben Simmons that incites people, guys? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy, this guy, he didn't play all of last season. The last time we've seen him on a basketball court was him completely collapsing and, you know, not shooting a wide open layup in a crucial moment in a game seven. And then he, he refuses to play for the Sixers again because Doc Rivers threw him under the bus and he cites mental health. He cites back injuries. And I completely, um, I completely empathize with the mental health. But then he kind of lost me when he asked the Sixers for his money and he got his money. He didn't play all season. And then he went to, you know, he went to legally with the Sixers and asked for his money. He ended up getting it. So I, I don't really, it's hard for me to feel bad for you when you're not playing basketball and you're still getting paid. And, you know, like we, he's had all these other problems with his game. Like he doesn't know how to shoot a basketball. He's a professional basketball player. So, uh, yeah, I think he's a very polarizing player and I'm excited to finally see him on a basketball court again. Maybe. Yeah. He's super intriguing because he was a very hyped player, you know, coming out of high school to LSU and then be the number one overall pick. And, you know, he's being compared to LeBron James, and he obviously never fulfilled that. And it seems like he hasn't gotten better since his rookie season when he started playing because he's never developed that jump shot. So it's easy to make fun of him because of how skilled everyone is now and how well they can shoot. He's just not that guy. But at the same time, he does so many things that are so effective. You know, if you're Ben Simmons, I feel like he just kind of got to roll with it and say, you know what, I'm not a shooter, and I can take these jokes, but I can really help a team try to win a championship because that team in Brooklyn is very talented. I think he's, we're going to find out if he does have mental toughness, if he is able to really tune it out, because I think the situation that he is in 
with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, that team, the microscope, the history of him not shooting, getting his money, sitting out. Was that a phone in his pocket at practice or what was he doing? Like, you know, all that stuff. I think we're going to find out if he really like sometimes when you see guys that are talking about, oh, it doesn't bother me. I understand that comes with being Ben Simmons. I think they're really saying this really bothers me, but I'm just trying to explain why people go after me. I think it's really kind of going to be an interesting study. I promise you that team's not going to have success this year. You know, I just they are with the the comp- the way they're comprised of you know Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Ben Simmons. Those three guys all have their own issues. They're going up against Giannis. They're going up against a pissed off Joel Embiid, a pissed off Celtics team. I there's no chance I can see the Nets having success this year. They got great talent though, Stephen. I mean, they have Kevin Durant. Yeah, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Ben Simmons. I mean, that is. Three legitimate all-stars. They all have their own mental... Like, Kevin Durant's never won it by himself. Never. How many people have, though? Yeah, Kevin Durant's an all-time talent who had to win with the Warriors. Yeah, so. I... Michael I, Jordan had to win with Scottie Pippen. I, Kobe I think, had to win with Shaq. I think the happy medium, though, is, like, I think they'll win games, but I don't like that, the makeup, the mental makeup of that team. I don't like it in a in a tough series, mm-hmm. like an That's Eastern Conference. When I say they don't have they won't have success, they're not going to make the finals. They're not going to win at all. But, yeah, they're going to win some games. They might make a run. How bad would it be if they did win the finals? Would it be, be bad for the game? Adam, you know, Adam Silver on the stage with Ben Simmons and Kevin Durant. Yeah, I think it would be – I think it would be – Eh, maybe it'd be good for the game, you know, because Kevin Durant wanted out. He stuck it through, and I think it could be a message to the players. Like, stick it through. If things are going bad, don't just ask out. Yeah, but he's, he only stuck it through because he didn't have anywhere to go. I know, like, yeah. You know what I mean? He like, to, yeah. But, and it wasn't like Kevin Durant looked himself in the mirror one morning and said, you know what, I'm going to buck up here, and I'm just going to get through this. Like, he had nowhere to go. He tried to get the coach fired, tried to get the GM replaced. So which team would be good for the game? Let's talk. Like, Let's talk about that for a second. Who wins the NBA title and we walk away going, that was great for the NBA? I think it already happened, but Giannis. You know, Giannis is a guy, Jokic. uh, Those are a couple players that have stuck in it through smaller markets. You know, I don't want to say completely small market, but smaller. And they could have gone to a big city and instead they're, you know, they're loyal to their team. And I think, uh, you know, Joel Embiid has been through a lot in his career. I think he's waiting for either an MVP or a title. I think that would be good for the league, but certainly not the Nets. It It should be the Warriors. They've done it the right way. They've built through the draft. They're in a big city. Like they, they, their success built them a new arena. They did it all the right way. Steph Curry has ev- has revolutionized the game. But like since they win so much, people don't like them. So he, that should be the team. I think for the NBA, they would just love to have obviously like the Lakers be really good. That'd be the best for the league or the Knicks. Um, How about but- Boston? How about Boston overcoming you know the Ime Adoka thing? And you know that's another roster that's pretty much. Homegrown, yeah, built through the draft again. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think Boston would be a good example just to uh, you know show that guys are overcoming things because in the NBA, a lot of these guys looked at as, as being soft and giving everything. So yeah, it's a good point. And a long shot. How about Memphis? Oh, I, I don't know about Memphis this year, but that would be great. Long you know, shot. I yeah. think I think Memphis is one of the teams to watch for in the future. But for this year, yeah, I, I can't see them going far. But that would be great. You know, I think that's another team that very underrated front office, and they've just they've drafted really well, really smart decisions, and I think that would be really good for the league. When you look at the top nine teams, when you look at futures odds, it's all large market teams except Milwaukee, and. I think that's really an interesting study. I think I think the league needs a small market champion, 
and maybe a small market champion that isn't Milwaukee. So, you know, because I think one of the big pro- the biggest problems for fans in the NBA is that you start the season in Sacramento, in Portland, in Memphis, in Minnesota, in Cleveland, in New Orleans. Uh, you start the season going, you know, we don't have a chance. And I think that's a real problem. Yeah. Quick thought on that. I think maybe not this year, but Cleveland is stacked with young talent. New Orleans is stacked with young talent. Memphis is stacked with young talent. So I think it's going to come. I think that wish is going to come true. Maybe not this year, though. You can get the Grizzlies at 22-1 to 1 right now mm-hmm. to uh, win it all. I want you to leave it here. Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State football coach, still ahead. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. My poll on Twitter has been up for 24 minutes. 633 votes have been cast. Who wins on Saturday, USC or Utah? Currently, 58% of those weighing in say Utah, but a lot of interesting comments on there as well. I'll keep you updated on that. Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State football coach, is coming up in about five minutes, bottom of the hour. He'll be here with us. I'm excited to talk to him about Saturday's game against Washington State. Jake Dickert, the Washington State coach, will be on later in the week. Ask him about playing at Research Stadium. Big football game for the Beavers. These next two really interesting for Oregon State. Uh, would be a big win if Oregon State can get Washington State. Really changes sort of the uh, projection for the season if Oregon State gets this game. Because if you can beat Washington State, you follow that with Colorado at home. And I'm not saying anything in the Pac-12 conference is a gimme because we have seen some weird stuff over the years, including Oregon State losing to Colorado last season. But beating Washington State sets you up nicely for a three-game win streak if you're Oregon State. And three in a row is lightning in a bottle on this show. And Jonathan Smith and Oregon State would be well-positioned to get to eight or nine wins if they can get those three games. If they lose to Washington State, changes the whole calculus. So I think it's a really big game on Saturday. But I'll ask Jonathan Smith who's going to start a quarterback and how he's feeling about this week's game. He's coming up next. I want you here for it. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Our next guest is a huge Dodger fan. First pitch in the National League uh, Division Series between the Padres and the Dodgers is coming up in about seven minutes. Padres at the Dodgers. Dodgers leading that series one game to none. You think you're going to get out of here in seven minutes, Jonathan Smith, to watch your Dodgers? What do you think is going on here? Well, yeah, I got it. I got the TV on in the background here, so I'm going to wait. I'll let you know when Kershaw gets out there for the first pitch. All right. I'll let you know. That sounds good. Hey, what do you have to say to Mariners fans? That was brutal. Uh, you know what it was. There's no question. Um, I will tell you, though, like, yeah, it's one game, and you got to be able to reload, and the Mariners are ready to do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, tough way to lose a game. But let's face it, it's a five-game series, and we're ready to reload and go again tomorrow. You guys uh, went down to Stanford and won. I think anytime you win on the road in this conference, you got to celebrate it. I don't think it was lucky, though. I'm going to tell you why, and then I'm going to let you go. Silas Bolden, fantastic catch. Great throw by Gulbrunson. Uh You found something in your zone run game late in the third quarter, and you guys you went right to it in the fourth quarter. You got big plays from Damian Martinez and others. You outgained Stanford. Yes, uh, Sean Harrison makes a great play at the end of the game. 
two Stanford guys didn't. That's not luck. You make your own luck, don't you? Well, yeah, I, I, there, there's some truth to that, what you're saying. I mean, the, the fourth quarter is when you win the game. Uh, you got to be able to execute and make plays for four full quarters. Um, and beyond just those offensive plays, I mean, the defense had to come up with a stop, and they were able to do it to get us an opportunity to have the ball again. And then we throw, you know, two completions before Sean's to move the ball a little bit closer. And, and obviously, Sean makes the huge play to win the game. Did Ben Gulbranson do enough to get another start? Where are you with Chance Nolan right now? Yeah, I think Ben's headed towards starting. I mean, we'll make the final call here the last couple of days, but I think Ben is headed toward doing it again. And he did. He did some really solid things for a first start on the road, which I want to say this, it gives Stanford some credit. They played their best football game. They played all year, created some issues for us. Uh, But Ben was solid, man. I mean, he didn't turn the ball over on us, uh, got us in the right plays, was pretty pretty good with his decision-making, getting guys chances down the field. and so I was, you know, for our first start on the road, Ben did a lot of good things. Yeah, I, I thought, you know, he took care of the ball. You guys, what was different play calling first half, second half, or was it more execution that you were getting a result? Well, you know, I think we got some some throws down the field in the second half uh, than more than we did in the first. Like, you're getting that. We found a couple of run, run schemes. Like, Damian Martinez, long run, did an awesome job on the outside zone. The backside was really a critical part of that play that we did a whole lot better in the, the second half a couple times than we did in the first. Um, and so, you know, that's how a momentum and, and, and plays are, are, are made. So I don't think it was drastically different than the garage of the play calling, but we just emphasized some stuff that, um, that worked a little better. It looked like the backs were looking for better cuts in that third and fourth quarter. Is that something you're coaching on the sideline, telling your guys, look, the lanes are there, look for the cut, or is it just – they already know this stuff, and if you execute it, they should already be in position to make those plays. There's some times in the game you got to tell these backs to continue to trust the, the track they're on. And, and really, if you trust your track you're on, the way it's getting blocked for, the cuts you need to make are on the second level against yeah. the secondary, not trying to be making cuts on the three technique or the linebacker. Um, and, again, there's a field of playing running back, let's face it, and we've got three different guys doing some – doing some good stuff, but Damien's in particular, he made some guys miss at the next level. That's when he put his foot in the ground. It's a lot of fun to watch that finish. What was, you know, here's here's something else, though. You're interviewed right after the game. You're you're cool as a cucumber, like just level. Yeah. But inside, are you going nuts? But you know, like, hey, I don't, I, I don't need to do a cartwheel here on television. Well, I, I'm try, I was not ready to do some cartwheels. There's no question I need to check myself because ultimately you're trying to go on the road to win a game and we did that but all i could think about was so many issues that we got to clean up and do better especially going back to those first three quarters um that's maybe just the coach in me um but again we were excited to win just like any day after the after a win or a loss we're back to work and we had a lot to clean up washington state's front seven very disruptive what do they look like what are they doing on film yeah, athletic and physical at the line of scrimmage, man. Those two edges is as good as we played all year. Uh, coming off the edge, sacking the quarterback. These linebackers running the ball. Number one is good, as good a player defensively, I think, is in the league. You see all his tackles for loss. Uh, sacking the quarterback himself. This is a good scheme with good players that believe in it. They play hard. They're athletic. Um, a real, real talent. A legitimate, I think, one of the best defenses in our league and we'll, we'll see all year. 
you know, offensively, though, they can be explosive. The quarterback is tough to get down, understands what they're trying to accomplish offensively, spitting the ball out to the receivers in a hurry, buys some time in the pocket. they still got a little bit of a run game. Um, and, you know, I think they're a little bit similar to their season and ours. I mean, both of us are 4-2. and two. They've lost two games to really good teams, top, I don't know, 15 or so, just like us. Um, and so they're playing some good football, coming to our place. We're going to have to play really well to earn a win. What do you think the home field is worth in the Pac-12? I mean, in the NFL, they'll say three points, but I, I, I think it's more like eight or ten. And, you know, Jack Coletto, your linebacker, he, he thinks it's 14. What's the home field worth? Like, not your home field, but just in general. Yeah, in general, I mean, it's worth probably more than three points, I would say, in the Pac-12. I'd say that some places in our league probably way more than three points, including Brewster Stadium. I'm going to need it again. The energy makes it difficult to operate offensively when the crowd's in it, the noise is going, the defensive players' energy that comes from a crowd that's behind them. Um, and so we're going to need it. I know that. And, you know, going down the whole league, let's face it, there's some pl- tough places to play in this league, a lot of them in the Northwest. Um, and, and we need to have home field advantage this Saturday. Is Kershaw on the mound yet? No, they're interviewing uh, Juan Soto right now, it looks like. So. Your, First base hadn't happened quite yet. Who's your favorite all-time Dodger? Oh, yeah. Uh, Fernando Valenzuela, probably. You know, I was young, but yeah. this guy was out there. He was epic. And, and even I'll go back on looking at some stuff. This guy, uh, just a huge Dodger favorite of everybody and pitched big time for us. Man, that guy, when, when he came into the league, I mean, I think it was like about his – third season he won 19 games i was a giant fan oh i just i couldn't stand the guy because he was so damn good and and, yeah. and left-handed and uh phenomenal competitor yeah yeah it's been uh you know being a dodger but there's been some great great players obviously in the national league and the nl west giants dodgers but he always just stood out to me i enjoyed because we used to go to a bunch of games growing up yeah. And anytime he was starting you know because each game you go to he wasn't always starting but when we caught a couple it was pretty fun all right, uh, you you get this game at home. You got the crowd at home. Um, in obviously, it's a big conference game. But m- meanwhile, big story going on in the NFL with all the roughing the passer stuff. And I, I don't need you to be tuned into that. But how do you coach that with your defensive linemen, linebackers, safeties who might be on a blitz? How do you coach a guy to make the right football play, but also avoid the roughing, avoid the targeting? You know, I, I think it's a tough thing to ask of a defender. It is. It's not easy because you want these guys being fast and physical and going. Changes things when you can get around the quarterback, let alone sack them. Uh, but then you got to have quick, instant decision making when you get around them. If that ball is released, you can't hit them high in the helmet. You can't get even. You can't even hit them low. You can't throw them to the ground late. Um, so it's not simple. I, I appreciate our guys' effort and you know just being aware around the queue. But this thing is not easy, not just for us, but everyone in the in college football and the NFL. And I get it from the NFL's end. They need to protect those guys. Those guys are super valuable to each organization, the starting quarterback. And so it's not an easy thing. Do you think that should be reviewable, that they go, hey, a roughing the passer should be a let's go to the booth and determine? Or is that something that should be done on the field only? You know, that's interesting. I haven't thought about it that way. That would be interesting because it does change things, and it's a delicate. If I'm a referee, yeah, uh, how hard. I'm calling that, um, I don't think that's a bad idea. 
All right. I'm going to let you go watch that Dodger game. Go get after it. Congrats on the win last week. Get this one. It'll be a lot of fun to see it. And, uh, you know, uh, good luck to you this week, and keep doing what you're doing. Hey, you're coming down, right? It's homecoming. Homecoming, man. Yeah. I, I'm always around that program. I get my kids in the stands. She's there. I mean, everybody's locked into what's going on with you guys. So Nice. Okay, yeah. so we'll see you. Yeah, it'll be All a great right. crowd. All right. Jonathan Smith. There he is. Oregon State coach. Um, how are you feeling about Oregon State, Washington State, guys? How are you feeling about this game? I think that Oregon State certainly got a shot. You know, I kind of leave it to a coin flip a little bit with Oregon State and Washington State. I've kind of put these two programs together a little bit. You know, I think of them as, you know, fifth and sixth, maybe sixth and seventh, kind of the middle of the conference right now. But I know Washington State's got some big injuries. You know, one of their top receivers, their uh, they're running back, Nakia Watson, they're a little bit banged up. So I, I think Oregon State's got a good shot, and I think I'm going to pick Oregon State. A little spoiler into our picks coming later this week. I think I'm going to pick Oregon State because of those injuries, but I think it's two pretty even teams. Yeah, I, I love the fact Oregon State beat at home. I think that's a real big yeah. thing. You know, we saw that last season going undefeated at home, and then when they played USC, how good that defense was in Corvallis. I think that continues against Washington State, who, you know, I'm coming around on their offense. I'm not completely sold yet on Cam Ward and that offense, so I think Oregon State will get them. I think it's going to be a great game. Like, I, I think the premier game in the conference on the weekend is USC and Utah in Salt Lake City. So much at stake there, but I'm looking at this game. I really have been on the fence with Washington State and Oregon State. I have been back and forth because on one hand, um, I look at the games that Oregon State has won this year, and, you know, they beat Stanford, they, they beat Boise State, they beat Fresno State, they beat Montana State, uh, you know, that the level of competition for their wins is not, this would be their best win, right, if they beat, Washington State, this is going to be the best opponent that they've beat to this point. Do you think that Washington State is better than Fresno State with Jake Hayner in Fresno? It's hard. I, I think Washington, Washington State, State is – I like Washington State a little more. A little, little more, but it's it's close given the, the field. But I think it would be their – I think it would be their best win if they if they can beat Washington State at home this week. That said, I, I am looking at the guys that are out for Washington State. Um, my, it, to me, it comes down to Ben Gulbranson. If, if, like, he's not the most mobile guy. And so that gives me a little bit of pause against a defense that's pretty disruptive and has some edge guys, as Jonathan Smith mentioned there. I also think it's kind of an elimination game in this Pac-12 championship race. You know, both these teams have two losses, and I think, you know, if you can stay at two losses, you can hang around a little bit, but I think the loser of this game you can no longer talk about as a serious Pac-12 title Vegas contender, which makes it super interesting as well. 815 votes now on the poll at John Canzano BFT on Twitter. Utah getting 60% now of the vote. Uh, USC sitting right around 40% on that. A uh, lot of interesting comments. Uh, coming back, uh, we'll go around the Pac-12 a little bit, plus the path for Oregon. I promised it. The path to the college football playoff, it's not as complicated as people are making it. I think Oregon can get there, but it needs to do three things and three things only to get there. I'll talk about them next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson and the Pulse coming up top of the hour. 
in Portland on 750 the game. What's Peter got on the show today? Is Peter hanging around there? Uh he's he's Can't prepping out. That. Yeah, he's prepping out in the other uh, studio. But is he stretching? Yeah, he's, yeah. He's warming up. He's got the Braves on. He's watching the Braves. I know. I know Peter just by following him on Twitter. I know he's got some some strong Blazer thoughts, and then I know he's uh, he's got the Braves on. So the show pretty much right writes itself these yeah. days. Yeah, yeah talking talking to Peter before before your show earlier in the day about the Blazers. Uh, he definitely has the Blazer thoughts. That is for sure, and strong ones. But that. Did you guys see this major story involving Jamie Foxx? I didn't. didn't okay, I? so I guess Cardi B, who's having a birthday party, it's her birthday. Jamie Foxx showed up to the party, brought 10 people with him, and apparently they didn't know he was coming, so they didn't have room for him. He was denied entry. Mm. Never see that happen in Hollywood. What? But for people who don't know who Cardi B is, Sean, can you help us with that? Cardi B is just a, you know, she's a female rapper, and her music's pretty eh, in my opinion, even yeah. though I do like hip-hop music, but a lot of people do get down with it, and that's really all I have to say about it. I, she's Apparently, a female rapper. he showed up in a white Rolls Royce, and the paparazzi was there, and he took his shoes off. He cha- He has driving shoes, and he took his driving shoes off, and then he put his party shoes on. I, I, I got to get some driving shoes. I need to go to Shoe Mill and say, hey, where, where are the Urbertz's shoes? And get, get the driving shoes. Yeah, what, what would be the best driving shoes? I don't know. Apparently, he's got it. Apparently, the paparazzi thought they looked identical. They said they, they couldn't really tell the difference. But Mr. Life of the Party went up and he had 10 people with him and he, he had to do the embarrassing walk of shame back to his car. Mm. And apparently, uh, um, Somebody came running out after they realized that he was denied entry and he was getting into his car and he said, no, it's all good. It's all good. I love you, but it's too much. He, I think he was embarrassed that they didn't have room for him. And then when they found out that he was sitting outside, they went running out and tried to get him in there. Like, how does that happen? I, I don't even know. Did it, did it just not recognize him or like, well, you know, because it's Jamie Foxx. Like you would know yeah. that, right? And you just let him in. Like, why would you say, no, you're not coming unless you're beefing with him? And then I don't know. Is Cardi B and Jamie Foxx beefing, Sean? Uh, I can't say I follow this world too much. I, I know some other stuff that's going on around the hip hop world, like Kanye West getting kicked off Twitter. But I, I can't say I follow yeah. with what's yeah. up. What, so give us what you oh, do you know. don't even want to know. Yeah, I do want to know. Kanye West has been up to some stuff. Uh-oh. What's he doing? Well, not good. Stuff. He's appearing on he's appearing on you know political uh, yeah. networks. Okay. He's he got his Twitter back and he sent off maybe three tweets that since getting the Twitter back and they were all very very flagrant. One of which was very very offensive to a certain community, and okay. he has since been kicked off Twitter. Kanye I, West. Yeah, I think he he likes to be kicked off Twitter. Some people you know some people if you can't handle being on Twitter. You shouldn't be on Twitter. You yeah. Know? Yeah, you know you're bad if you know Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. They had the yeah they had the they had the buckle down because he was he was unscathed uh, on Twitter. I'll tell you that much. You can look it up if you want to look it up. All right, I don't need to look it up. I just that's why you're here. You're you filled me in. I, that's all I need to know about that. But if Jamie Foxx shows up with ten people, is that poor form to bring ten people to a party? I think I think that it's too many people. That's probably what set off the alarm bells with the people at the door. They're like, we, we, we don't have room for 10 people here. We don't have like a VIP section. You're not on the guest list. If it's Jamie Foxx and like four people, that's a different equation. Well, what's the size of your entourage, John? 
It's uh, me and uh, you and Sean and Anna and you know whoever else. That's, that's it. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't know. I don't know the proper <laughs> the proper number of entourage members that you can have. Like ten does sound like a lot, but maybe that's average in that world. Do you have like do you is any do either of you have a story, like in college, you know, friend shows up, it brings fourteen people with them to your house, and do you deny them entry? Like, is there a is there a number where it becomes poor form, where you're like, dude, I'm not having 10 people, you know, I invited you and one other? Well, it's interesting because I went to college during COVID. So my senior year, I had a little house and we were really, really close knit about who was allowed in our house. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily leaving anyone out. But yeah, there was times where, you know, maybe we invited a friend over. Like, you know, one of my roommates during my senior year, hopefully he's not listening. Like oftentimes he would bring some friends over without our permission, which is totally cool in normal times. But during COVID, we were like, man, like that can't be happening. Like we're not trying to get sick. So you asking that question kind of reminded me of that. Is it is that cool though in normal times? But like, tell me about that whole relationship you have with the roommates. Like, did you have to clear that? Like, I I actually think it's poor form in normal times because other people live in the house. Like, what's the number of people where you where you'd feel like you need to consult with the roommates? Mm, I, I'm gonna say over three. I'm gonna say over three. I think a couple a couple friends is cool, and I, I categorize a couple friends as being three. But I think if you have over three friends, you know, if you're bringing over three people, then yeah, you have to you have to get permission on that. When I was younger, I didn't really want to meet new people, so I'm with you, John. Like, you didn't really want to like have new people come in. I didn't want that. So if you're being like a friend, that's fine, and I can meet them. You know, I have I have limited friend spots, so I I, I didn't want to meet all these new people. Yeah, I I think too that like there's a whole. I, I can remember being in college, like there was a whole, uh, you know, a whole code to like, if you're going over to somebody else's house, I got invited, but I want to bring Steven and Sean with me. Do I have to call and be like, hey, I want to bring these two people with me? Or what if I'm already there, but I tell you guys, hey, I'm at my friend's house and you guys show up. That's even worse. Yeah, I feel like there's got to be more communication. Right, like if I'm hanging out with somebody and I get invited to a house, I'm going to say, yeah, but I'm hanging out with this person. Is it cool if they come over too? Like I'm not just going to show up and bring random people. I feel like that is bad form. There you go. Uh, on Twitter right now, by the way, uh, I have a lot of USC followers, apparently, or USCL, or Utah followers. About 61% now of the 890 votes are cast for Utah. I, I, I actually think it's a closer game than that. I'm not sure who I'm going to pick. I'll give my pick on tomorrow's show. We'll give all of our picks on tomorrow's show. I want to hear from Peter Sampson. Uh, can you guys get him on here? I want to know what he's going to talk yeah, about. I'll go, I'll go get him real quick. Go grab him. He's watching the Braves game. Chance to tease his show. Get you know The Pulse is coming up with Peter Sampson, for those of you listening on 750 The Game in Portland. And Peter, I think, is going to talk a little bit about the Blazers, who all of America are down on after seeing the preseason. I feel like maybe I should be zigging while everyone is zagging, like maybe I should be the guy banging the drum going, the Blazers are going to be great this year, but I just don't, I, I don't trust them. Peter, what's going on, man? Oh, man, trying to uh, see my Braves through to a uh, game, uh, series tying victory here. What's the score? Give us the update. Come uh, on. Nothing, yeah, nothing, nothing. <laughs> it's been a great pitcher's duel after oh. a long rain delay. It's my kind of yeah. baseball. There you have it. The Braves trying to hold on in a nothing-nothing game. <laughs> How long uh, hey. was that rain delay? Oh. oh, what, like three hours, something like that? Like, what do you do? You just stay. I've never been at a stadium when there's a rain delay. Do you just? I have. Do you just drink the whole time? Pound beers, yeah. You go into the concourse, you get out of the rain, and you hang around, and you decide, do you want to? How long do you stay there? But, um, by the way, 
Uh, what are they doing now? Have they started back to play and you know? Yeah, yeah. so yeah, it's top of the sixth now, okay. and, and it's shocking because a rain delay generally, you you know, starting pitchers they have their rhythm, you have your momentum. This can throw you way off. We've got a pitchers duel, really rare. Yeah. Normally, you see someone come in, struggle with command, and give up a couple runs immediately. So it's it's kind of unique. The Braves announced during the delay that all food and non-alcoholic beverages were discounted 50% off until the first pitch during the weather day. Why go non-alcoholic if you're the Braves? Because <laughs> uh, you don't want some bozo streaking onto the field and tackling somebody. <laughs> well, I asked that question because I did see a video of a fan at the Atlanta game. He had a shirt like over his head and his, you know, his chest was exposed. He was like pounding his chest and screaming. So I just figured <laughs> that's what you do in rain delays. You just go crazy. Yeah, it's you. And by the way, not not a good job by him getting that shirt off right? <laughs> right you get you get that shirt off quickly yeah uh, peter on. you peter the the blazers have not been good in the preseason Ugh. okay they, they laid an egg um there's other teams like milwaukee milwaukee's like zero and four but why do we not trust the blazers but we trust like the bucks and other teams man proof of performance and it look going zero and four zero and five in preseason on its face is not a big deal but i have seen Nothing. And you know me, John. Uh, deep down, I'm just a fan of this team. That's just right. what I am. But I've seen nothing that instills any confidence. It's one thing if it's the Warriors or the Bucks and they're playing their second string guys and they're trying to get them better at defense or introduce a new wrinkle. They're just trying to institute, what, guard the pick and roll, not give up the three. They're playing their starters heavier minutes. Uh, I mean, you can only take away so much from preseason. I am very, very concerned, John. There you go. If you're a Blazer fan, Peter Sampson's concerned. I share your um, Groundhog Day feeling when I'm looking at this team. Do you think, like Stephen and I were talking about this earlier in the show, like one of the ideas that Blazer fans are up against is Chauncey Billups as a coach. Are we going to learn anything about Billups this season? I think we might. And I think he got a pass last year, which which was fair because that wasn't a real basketball team. But again, the, just the scheming that I'm seeing, it's not just the lack of execution. It's really, that's your scheme in the NBA coming into 2023 that you're going to blitz like that? It's... I wonder, and when I say wonder, I think I know the answer about whether or not this was a uh, good hire. There you go. All that coming up, Peter Sampson and the Pulse, top of the hour. We should go 50% off all beverages and all food until <laughs> Peter Sampson's show open starts. Get to the concession stands now. All right, we're back tomorrow with another great show. Jaden Grant on tomorrow's program. I promised you Oregon's path to the college football playoff. I'm going to start tomorrow's show with it. Uh, Peter Sampson of the Post coming up. Grab a podcast of this show. Uh, not here for a long time, just a good time.